computer. And I think we are live again where... Dang, episode two. Could you, can you imagine? Who would have thought? Who would have thought we, we, we come here? So welcome to Outlast the Iron. This is episode two with your hosts, Alex Feinberg and Zach Homel. Hey, everybody. Uh, Zach's looking pretty right now. If you're listening only on Spotify, you might be missing out on the full aesthetic experience of seeing Zach's heavily bearded face uh, staring into the camera. Um, yeah, so today and, we're going to talk the backdrop and the backdrop looks really good. Hey, how do, how do I sound? I, I want to make sure I didn't do another sound check prior to this, you sound do sexy. Feel, but do you feel as if my, my mic isn't working? The mic's working. Yeah. I think okay, cool, know, cool. my personal zoom connection might not be the greatest, but you know, that's what you deal with when, when everybody's on lockdown and probably streaming Netflix at the same time. And so you, know. you sound and look excellent. You fixed your hourglass this time, which is good. I try my best, you know, it's, if, it, if I'm a show pony, then I need to make sure that I'm showing well. So was uh, you implying that after the lockdown's done, you'll be moving to Indianapolis so we can record in person? I, I was not implying that. Now, is, okay. is, that, is that an impossibility? No, it's not an impossibility, you know? We were talking- It's never an impossibility for people to move to Indianapolis to become part of IVB. I've been doing it now for like five years. All my friends are from out of town. And like folks- Jose's- California, Jay's from Ohio, Charlie's from Jeffersonville, Indiana, Jerm was from here. My other buddy Tanner, he's from Wisconsin, uh, Dylan Spina's from New Jersey. They all moved here, so we need one more uh, Cali guy to move. Right, so and if you guys, if anybody's interested in like joining a cult or starting a cult um, at some point in their life, just pay attention to what Zach's doing, because he's basically like, how do, I, how do I get all my friends in one location without moving myself? And you know, he's doing a good job of it so far, slowly yeah. accumulating. You could call it a cult, I guess, you know, yeah. whatever you're into. I wasn't implying, I wasn't saying that you were joint, you know, doing that. I was just saying if other people were interested, they could use you as a, a template. I um, like that. And, and so, you know, cult, cult's interesting. Cult, you know, it's, a, it's a psychology, it's a, a psychological phenomenon. I think today, in today's episode, um, we've gotten some feedback and, you know, it's something that Zach and I really enjoy just to talk about uh, mindset, right? People, mm. humans, humans are complicated creatures and, um, but sometimes very simple. And uh, as we get older, we notice that our thoughts, we notice how important our thoughts are. Um, you know, most people's parents would tell them growing up, you know, think before you speak, think before you act. Um, but, you know, as you get older into adulthood, you realize, number one, most people don't do that. They, they act almost purely out of emotion almost mm. all the time. Um, and number two, their emotions aren't harnessed very well. So they're not actually getting the most out of themselves. And, you know, one thing that Zach and I have, um, you know, noticed independently, you know, before even, even you know, meeting each other, uh, is that if you want to be able to perform at a high level, you need to understand what's going on in your mind. And sometimes you need to swat it down and sometimes you need to amplify it, right? Mm -hmm. And it really depends on the, the particular situation and, uh, and who you are as a person. And so, when you know, does this, when do you think the psychology starts to become adopted? You know, is it early on when a coach is flipping? Because, you know, coaching as a football coach or baseball coach, I, I go to Little League baseball games and I do a lot of observing. Mm -hmm. And I'll see these coaches breaking clipboards. I'm talking seven, eight-year-old year kids. Coaches mm -hmm. throwing clipboards in the air, snapping clipboards. But they're showcasing this lack of emotional intelligence. Does it start from an early age um, that, that we're adopting the psychology of reacting solely off of emotion and not truly, as I would like to say, stop? breathe, think for yourself. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple different components to it. You know, if you look at coaching, I, I would imagine there's a lot of mimicry going on with that. And so coaches, if you get, you know, if you get a bunch of adult coaches in a little league environment and it's very clear from, from the organizational's ethos and from the top down, from the bottom up, like you're not going to act like a child. Um, you'll not have parents acting like children. I think when, when you get into a league and it's, it's certainly not all leagues, but it's probably many leagues where it, it, there is no internal, um, you know, code of ethics, not even a, a written or formal one, just an understanding of like, you're not supposed to act this way. Then, you know, you probably see different coaches modeling what they see on TV in some, in some aspects. And so what a lot of people might not realize about their own personality development is it's modeled after behavior that they see in their own life, both in person and in media. And in media, when you're watching people in sports, you're almost always watching the most extreme reaction. So sports center didn't become popular showing entire games. They'll only show the five seconds of the game where the coach is the most mad. And so what people will get if they watch years and years of sports center is this uh, kind of, you know, non-realistic idea that all baseball games are full of home runs and strikeouts. Um, and that, uh, you know, coaches will get mad and throw things all the time. And that, you know, it's just, it's the most, the craziest things that go on in games. And so they think that, you know, it's appropriate to model that behavior. Um, What's interesting and kind of what you said with that is we watch uh, and we begin to mimic behavior. I talk about this a lot as far as content consumption goes. I'm very aware of the amount of consumption and the type of consumption yeah. that I'm taking in on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh yeah. Meaning, I know that if I'm taking in enough Sports Center, enough CNN, Fox News, whatever, I don't really watch these news channels, but I'm just saying through my social media channels. But it, it is whatever it is. It's it's anybody's particular content. The more content I take in and consume, the more of it I have to put out. So what we consume eventually subconsciously begins to dictate our emotions and our reactions. Totally. So and without even recognizing it, like you said, totally. a lot of these behaviors are mimicked, but if the coach were to see themselves from a third party, they might be like, Oh, that's not me at all. Yeah, Right. And this is actually interesting because when I, my first job after I got done playing minor league baseball, I was working at a hedge fund in Hong Kong. And, you know, part of working at that hedge fund is it was a really, really interesting uh, fund. You know, this is like 2010, 2011. The fund manager was very skeptical of central banks, very skeptical of governments. Um, his, you know, and he made his kids skeptical too, to where his kid was buying Bitcoin in like 2010, 2011, when it was like $30 or something like that, or $20. That and, well, yeah. And, um, and oh, but it, it all fit within his narrative. And, you know, he was, he was of the opinion that intelligence agencies were you know controlling a lot that was coming out of american news outlets we know that's true it was historically true right we know it was true up through the 70s we don't actually know if it ever stopped but we know it was true at one point um and you know what i got from removing myself out of this like united states matrix for about 18 months and seeing the world from you know basically a removed standpoint was um and this is what actually hit it where i was not in the united states for 10 months in a row and then I came back to the United States for a couple of friends' weddings. Um, and that was the first time that I saw American news on TV in about 10 months. And the thing that stood out to me was, oh my God, this is sensory overload. 
like you look at news internationally and it's like information and you look at news in the United States and it's like, this is an entertainment product. This is clearly not created to inform you because you can look at how media is presented in other places where there's less colors in the background. There's less fireworks, you know, being produced by the, the special effects team. There's just, it's just, this is what's happening. And it was very obvious to me being removed from the environment for 10 months, coming back saying how this is not created to inform you. And then when I moved back to the United States several months after that, after having been gone for about a year and a half, I thought there's no reason for me to buy and own a TV because I don't want to pay for somebody to propagate thoughts in my head, right? I want the thoughts in my head to be consciously input, which, which is why I preferred getting content from the web because it required that I go get it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't being delivered to me to subconsciously change my opinions on things. Yeah, it wasn't prepackaged. And isn't it always interesting and a great thought that any time that we, this is any, any perspective in our life, anytime we remove ourselves from our particular universe, how we can begin to look into our old universe and see the holes in the crazy cycle that we were spinning ourselves around it. I find that all the time, even if it's in the gym. That, right. That's actually one reason why I have the podcast office here is because I need to remove myself from the gym's universe, from the gym's yeah. environment. Right. I, it's hard to be creative, to right. see outside perspectives, to gain right. new ideas when you're constantly running yourself in the same circles and the same patterns. And, and a lot of times living to a schedule, which is what a lot of people are doing. And this is why I think traveling is so important because it offers you these experiences and it breaks that monotony of your continual schedule. And, and I've told the basically the exact same thing to people for the last few years where, you know, when I'm in San Francisco, it's, it's comfortable. You know, I don't particularly like packing my stuff and leaving for a weekend, but every time I do, like literally 100% of the time I do, whether I'm seeing a friend, going on some weekend trip, it's like, yes, this was worth it. The several hundred dollars that I paid to leave here was worth the change of perspective for me to digest things from a third, uh, third angle. And, you know, in, even in Silicon Valley, where this is gonna be less popular in other places in the United States, the, you know, the more conservative places in the United States look at the West Coast like it's um, morally debaucherous, which can be true. But the flip side of that is they're gonna be more open to certain, um, you know, drugs, certain mindset altering drugs, whether it's a, a psilocybin um, or a, a THC, and you know what what i believe about those when they're when they're used properly is you're almost certainly less intelligent like if you're taking a math test right if any of those uh, mind altering drugs are in you so if you were to take the sat do not do those because they will not let you score your optimal score on the sat or they will not allow you to score your optimal score on a final exam but what they do do is, and, and I can only speak to the more benign ones. I haven't you know, gone out um, on the more extreme angles, but what they do do is, is they change your perspective to where if you're constantly thinking about one issue the same way over and over and over again, and all, of you, all you do is adjust how you look at it, even if you adjust the way you look at it and you have foggy lenses on, you, that, is, that is a supplemental uh, angle that you can have to evaluate what you're doing and unlock certain uh, certain ideas that might have held you back. And they could be obvious ideas, but because people get in, in singular tracks, they don't necessarily realize things that might be obvious to others that aren't obvious to them. And so, and, and what's, 
what's unique about these plant-based medicines that you're discussing, you know, psilocybin, which would be magic mushrooms for those who are a little bit uh, less hip to the term, uh, than marijuana, obviously, which is now becoming legal in multiple states. Speaking directly into psilocybin, right, magic mushrooms, my experiences with psilocybin were always not necessarily uh, thinking through, it offered me new perspectives. It's, it enlightened me. I like to say it enriched me to understanding and seeing things through other, other perspectives. And you kind of backing up a little bit, we talked about like culture, culturally influenced areas, you know, around obviously the United States in particular. This is also a reason why I believe that racism still exists in great parts of the United States. Like for instance, where I grew up in West Virginia, there was only a few black guys in the entire town. And it just so happened to be that my, my stepdad growing up, my mom's husband for 15 years was, they were in a biracial marriage. So my stepdad was black. Your dad's black, right? Huh? Your, your mom's black, right? Is that what you're gonna tell us? My mom's white, my stepdad's no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys, yeah, maybe though, I get real tan. <laughs> but uh, what's funny though is in town, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a very racist environment in our home life. My parents were very open to, I guess, that perspective, uh, especially my mom, obviously, and my dad as well. And they're very, very, very open to kind of all the things that we're discussing right now, especially my mom was. But other families in the community wasn't. And I heard a lot of racial slurs that I probably would have never heard until right. my mom started. My mom got in a biracial marriage. Mm -hmm. But I feel as if these, some of these people, which is ironically enough, has, have never left the Ohio Valley, have mm -hmm. never left our little area or from, they never traveled to the beach. They never, they never gained a new perspective or even had a new thought process or even opened up to the idea of seeing what it looked like on the other side to not just judge people by their skin color or whatever it even might look like or what other perspective might have been. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with because it's their lack of their lack of experiences. They lacked experiences. They adopted the opinions from their father, whoever it was before, and that just be, kind of became the tradition. I, I, I would offer a second angle to that. In, and I think, you know, in the modern world, and I don't even think it's the modern world, but I think the modern world's amplifying it. Uh, a lot of people have something that I would refer to as uh, dopamine withdrawals or, or dopamine shortages. And so, um, I, you know, I experienced this when I was going from playing sports to not playing sports, where you know, playing sports, I was used to having adrenaline, you know, run through my veins. And then when I stopped, it stopped running through my veins and, and your body starts to grasp for things that, that make it feel good because that's really how your mind, uh, you know, tells you what things to pursue, what things are, are safe, what things are, or maybe not even safe, but what things are beneficial and then what things are not. It's through pleasure, um, you know, the pleasure centers in your brain. And, um, you know, and so when you see people tearing other people down in, in ways that doesn't, that aren't entirely logical, um, you know, whether it's online or whether it's in person, uh, a lot of times it's because the person tearing the others down is suffering from some sort of dopamine deficiency. And if you give that person an opportunity, whether it's through wearing luxury brands, whether it's through, um, you know, work climbing the corporate ladder and, you know, slaving away for, for a company um, or whether it's, you know, employing uh, often circulated stereotypes. Uh, these are basically free sources of, uh, of, of ways to feel superior to others without actually doing anything. And if you offer people a, a menu of ways to feel superior to others without actually doing anything, most people will take them. 
Man, that's a that's a great perspective. I, I was having a hard time kind of connecting the dopamine to that. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit deeper for my own personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I tweeted this last night. Uh, did you see the tweet about the guy? Uh, I've been kind of calling, not calling people yeah. out, but making sub, them Subtweeting them, subtweeting them. Kind subtweeting of. them, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I subtweet you all the time. You know, oh, really? I, I didn't know that. To you what? that I'm talking about. You missed I didn't it. know. <laughs> I'm observing people's... I've been observing a lot of my tweets come simply from observation on social media, observing, like I said, at the baseball parks, the parks, wherever I'm at when I'm walking, whatever it looks like, or just Mm -hmm. self observation. Mm -hmm. And recently, I've been just really diving into observing people and how people conduct themselves on social media. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people conduct themselves on social media. Of course, I feel like a lot of people portray their best selves, but I also believe a lot of people, and for most cases, portray what they want to be or their purest self. And the reason why I say that is because there's this barrier with the screen. There's no real repercussions as far as really anything's concerned because you have that, that screen barrier. And I'm finding a lot of people, mostly the people who just don't even follow me as well, will comment on you know something that I put up and this usually post something negative. It's usually never harmful. Uh, it's often not hateful, but it's just a negative comment. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to observe, like, wonder why this particular, and what I'll do is go and I'll read their tweets and, who, and how they're tweeting and different things and to try to come up with my own observation or hypothesis, whatever it looks like. But I just keep coming down to the same answer is that people yearn for the ability to feel as if they are superior to other people. Mm-hmm. But I believe that it's always to fill an insecurity or a void that they're unable to fill in their personal life. Yeah, and I think now that being a dopamine, being a dopamine, I do believe we get a shot of dopamine when we feel superior or when we feel that we can add value to somebody. Yeah. So I do believe in some of these cases, people truly are trying to add value. But I think the process of how they are trying to add the value, they're going about it all wrong. I think there's a, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I think I look at this from, you know, an evolutionary psychology perspective and, you know, some critics will say, well, evolutionary psychology is kind of a bunk science, but it's, it's the prism that I've used to understand the world. And it's the prism that I've used to um, break down things that didn't intuitively make sense to me in my early twenties to where by my late twenties, they did. And so when I see people's behavior, I always try to, if it doesn't make sense to me, I try to map it to. Uh, how would this help somebody procreate? Because a lot of learned, a lot of evolved behavior or learned behavior is uh, essentially, um, you know, manifested because it has the ability to advance someone's procreation abilities. And so when you look at how men interact with each other, um, it's generally for one of a couple different, um, one of a couple different ends. And that is um, how can I increase my position within a hierarchy, right? So the way, what people do their entire work lives is they're working within a hierarchy and the reward for good work is they get a promotion and they rise within that hierarchy. When more formal hierarchies, there's a couple different ways that they become structured. Number one, they tend to naturally um, congregate around an alpha, right? That's just how humans interact. If you go to a party, you'll kind of see that there's like nodes and clusters of people and then they'll all kind of like you know, the, the conversations going to cluster around individuals. If you look at how people surf the web, the, the content consumption is going to cluster around individuals. And so what ends up happening is if you are one of those individuals around whom, um, you know, clusters of people are, 
what ends up happening is those clusters of people want to improve their relative position within that hierarchy. And they can do that in one of two ways. Number one, they can demonstrate value and demonstrating value can be done in a couple of different ways. You can demonstrate actual value, but a lot of people experience in their lives that demonstrating value is actually finding the thing to critique. And so if you go to the dentist, like you don't pay the dentist to tell you, Hey, things are great. You pay the dentist to tell you, Oh, actually, you know, you're missing, you're not brushing well here. You're not flossing well here. You don't go to the doctor to tell you things are great. You go to the doctor to find out what's wrong. And so most of people's ability to demonstrate value actually has to do the way our present economy structure has to do with identifying weaknesses. Even if you look at how, how you work with clients, it's identifying weaknesses and working with people to develop them. And so if you try to condense that to 140 or 280 characters at best, that might, <clears throat> that might be the way somebody can demonstrate value to that small social group that they're a part of with the hope that they can rise up from it. But the other side of that is a lot of times people will have the natural inclination to limit the growth of the alpha within that group, because I believe that people, you know, they, they say the, 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 the line power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I think humans are, um, have evolved to navigate these sorts of like alpha beta type relationships to where most many people will latch onto an alpha and, and become highly subordinate um, because that alpha kind of makes the world uh, feel safer to them and they feel more comfortable working really hard for that alpha than if, uh, formulating an independent idea of what's going on. So there's one set of people who, who feels like that, but then another set of people feels very uncomfortable when that alpha is actually growing re really fast and wants to do everything that they can to limit the growth of that alpha because they understand like in the back of their heads, even though they wouldn't be able to articulate it, that the, a growing gap between them uh, in the middle of the organization and the alpha at the top is actually dangerous for them. It, it, it's more likely that the alpha can exert some sort of um, power or influence over that person that puts them in a compromised situation. And so I think, you know, people's behavior in organizations is all, almost always how to improve their relative position um, or how to keep things stable, right? It's, it's one of two. It's, it's, do you want, do you want to ascend or do you want to keep things, you know, the status quo? And it, it, you can map almost every behavior that people have to that. I love your mind. I love that perspective. Yeah. I love the way you look through that. And it's, it's interesting kind of pulling that art part. I think it's interesting because you see that in all social circles and all work environments. It doesn't matter if it's like, you know, you're the, the alpha of the nerds or there's alphas in the coal mine, you know, every field has somebody who is playing this particular role. What's kind of unique about it though, is people search for alphas always within their realm, right? So I don't believe someone who's a Bill Gates, high tech guy, I don't view him as alpha. In my mind, I view him as if I'm in the jungle, I'm ripping this fucking guy's arms off. This guy, you know, my mindset, I, I believe is maybe more primal or a different approach. Mm -hmm. However, I will see an old dude who's 65 years old, 70 years old, who's been slinging hay bales his whole life working on the farm. I will see him more as alpha than I would see someone, whether it's a particular, you know, field that I guess is outside of what my beliefs are of what alphaness is, right? If you want to kind and of so this is actually really interesting and uh, it kind of underpins some things that we've talked about where, where folks have struggled through transition, like career transitions, right? And, and this is really, really challenging for some people, you know, me personally, where I went from wanting to be a major league baseball player my whole life to 
you know, being outside of the, the sports world for many, many years, um, you can't have the same heroes when you change games. And a lot of people don't realize that. And a lot of people get frustrated when they're moving from a, a military environment to a corporate environment or a sports environment to a corporate environment or, or, or one type of corporate environment to another type of corporate environment yeah. where they see the, the people who are above them within the hierarchy lack the traits that the people who are above them in the former hierarchy had, or even the people who are below them in the formal hierarchy. And so I could see, you know, if Zach went to go work, you know, under Bill Gates, he wouldn't even work under Bill Gates. He'd work under a person who worked under a person, worked under a person, worked under a person who worked under a person, you know, for Bill Gates. And what would happen is he would get in that environment and he would see that the alpha's behavior, which would be Bill Gates's behavior, would reverberate on down the organization because people will mimic the behavior of people north of them. And so what, Al, what, what Zach would do if, if he's a normal person who's working for Microsoft in, you know, 1999, coming from West Virginia, being able to bench press 400 pounds and squat 700 pounds, he would look and he'd say, these guys are all weak. These guys are all pussies. Why would I listen to anybody? And cause, and cause that is, he's going to take his, his training from his previous life and try to map it to his new, his new world, but it doesn't Maybe map that, like that. But also on the backside of thing, it's, I don't, re, I don't respect their values. We, we mm -hmm. have a different value system, which I think goes into place too, which I would potentially, I knew though this from personal experience about me. I don't know if I told this story on the last time we podcast, but I've been telling it on a podcast the other day. Um, when I got an argument with the dude from GNC who tried to basically like put me down and make me feel you know, beneath him, I didn't, I didn't respect his values. His values were, didn't align with mine. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't have the same morals as I had. With that being said, I couldn't respect you as a, as a superior to me if I can't respect your values and how you're conducting yourself as the superior. And I think a lot of that has to do with it as well. I have a hard time simply respecting men who don't train their body. And that's just me. And I'm not saying that it's, that's a biased approach or whatever that looks like. But if you can't take enough care of yourself, how can I respect you? How do you expect me to respect you? So these maybe preconceived values and uh, morals that I have and hold on to is potentially my reasoning and my lack of respect for other people, I guess, or alphas, if you will, in their own realms. What do you, yeah, what do you think? And I think for me, you know, that framework was malleable. And so for me, um, because I felt that I, I felt that, that, um, you know, making money in Silicon Valley was, a, was a game or a sport similar to playing baseball. And so if you look at who's making money in tech, it's, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg's and Bill Gates. So there's no, there's no denying that these people have done something well that a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan hasn't done, right? And so if I'm in that new world, I have uh, a couple different options. Number one, I can say everything's bogus and bunk and the people at the top don't deserve it. And there's nothing that I want to mimic about these people that are north of me. Or number two, I can say, hmm, I need to reformulate my understanding of what power is and what strength is. Because when I was you know, when I was 20, 21, 22, I thought the same thing Zach thought, you know, I thought, well, if you're stronger, if you're, if you're stronger, you're a superior person. But then, you know, what, the way I rationalize let, it. Let me, let me, let me mention them, not just strength, mental strength. And this sure. is why I say this. This is why I say strength. How often do you see in the corporate ladder, uh, everybody sucking everybody's dick to try to reach it to the top? If you, if that's your type of, and that's how you want to yeah. uh, scale your, your workplace by 
doing working the extra four hours over for your boss and taking time away from your family and taking away from yourself, you lack values. You lack the values that I respect. So it's not just strength as in physical strength, but also mental strength and endurance on, based off of your own core values and principles. Sure, I can't sure, respect sure. somebody who's going to break their core values and their principles, not because they're weak physically, but because they're weak mentally. Sure. And, but the flip side to that is if you think about what separates humans from beasts, humans are physically weaker than animals. Uh, than most most like large game animals, right? And um, and they're probably a little. Yourself. Most humans <laughs> are weaker than animals, and uh, you know the ability for humans to avoid uh, alpha to alpha confronta confrontation is probably superior to most animals. Where if I'm threatened by you, you know, if I'm a man and you're a man, and I'm threatened by you because I think you're gonna, you know, talk to my wife, talk to my girlfriend, whatever. Um, we have words that we can use to deal with that. Uh, a, a small portion of people don't use words and they try to fight. But if this was the jungle, it'd be a fight like 100% of the time, maybe not 100, 50% of the time. Whereas in the real world, in a civilized society, it's like half of 1% of the time there's a fight. 1% of the time there's a fight. And, and so what separates humans from beasts and what allows us to live um, in an advanced society and essentially be wealthy is more cooperation and and you can even see that in a team where if you're building a team and every person on your team is super mega alpha 100 competitive you're not going to work that well as a team right you don't want everybody to be the most competitive person they possibly can be because then there's going to be too much infighting and my observation is as organizations grow the at least short-term or intermediate term incentive is to limit the growth, is to grow the organization faster than the number of alphas grow within the organization. So if the organization's one, you want that person to be extremely aggressive. And I, it's somewhere like approximating the cube root of the amount of people in the organization. So if you have a one person organization, the cube root of one is one, you want that one person to be extremely aggressive. If your organization's 27, the cube root of 27 is three. So you want three out of 27 people to be really aggressive. But then if your organization's a thousand, the cube root of a thousand is 10. You only want 10 people to be hyper, hyper aggressive because if, if you end up linearly scaling the amount of hyper aggressive people within an organization, you end up having like a lot of unrest. And so if you look at how, how societies or militaries have been managed over time, a lot of it is to build unity, and, but a lot of it is also to, to reduce infighting and reduce the, the opportunity uh, for resentful people to cluster and then take down others within that group. And so there's a lot of thought or at least historical experience that goes into how you know our, our modern society and how corporate structures grow and that is what allows billionaires to exist right because the mm -hmm. only way you can actually be a billionaire or i mean for the most part the only way you're a billionaire is if you have thousands and thousands of people working for you and you are profiting off of their labor right and so and so that and being is cooperative yes Exactly. And that's it, cooperating. But at yeah. the end of the day, that's what's being taught to all of us from the fifth or from, from age five is mm -hmm. to be cooperative. Mm -hmm. the, the schooling system, you know, teaches this. This is being taught to us for, you know, the 12 grades you go to school and then the four years of high school that you go into. And then you're now pre-trained. You are pre-qualified now to climb the corporate ladder, but within reason. No, and not just that, you're, you're taught to view yourself as others view you. And so the the most dangerous thing and, i think and to be graded off your performance that's another thing which is now that can be found in in all facets of life 
No, but it's, it's graded by a third part, by, by a subjective third party, right? Whereas within, within lifting weights, it's like, I mean, yeah, you have a third party evaluate whether your form was, was legal, but for the most part, like, you know, I deadlifted 500 pounds. I don't need somebody to tell me, congrats, you deadlifted 500 pounds. I know I deadlifted 500 pounds. Whereas when you're a student, your ability to value yourself is contingent upon somebody else's external approval. And you don't even realize this because no five, six, seven, eight, 10 year old, 12 year old, 15 year old has this degree of self-awareness. But if you go 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of your life where your whole uh, identity or source of self-worth hinges on somebody else giving you that stamp of approval, you've all of a sudden molded your mind to perfectly fit within someone else's world and someone else's uh, corporate evaluation system. And you don't even realize it to the point where if you actually go to a lot of these elite universities, a lot of the students that they produce will, you know, they're, they're incredibly, I would say addicted to praise by someone else. Right. And if you actually get them in an environment where they're not constantly being told that they're on the right track and they're doing a good job and they're going in the right direction, they get really nervous and they don't really, they kind of like short circuit. And I believe it's because that's how they've been uh, guided and, and how they've sourced their own value through their life to the point where I even had an email exchange with this guy who wrote a book called don't send your kid to the Ivy leagues. And I was saying, look, you know, I've, this is what I've seen from the couple of years that I've been working at the time. I see the Ivy league kids are, um, you know, computationally. Okay. They're all proficient, but one thing that they have that separates them from other people is the need for authoritative approval. And he's like, look, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly the type of student that we, uh, we let in. And that's exactly the type of student that we graduate. And, and, you know, that is, um, why you will see a lot of people who are scared to pursue their dreams is because if you're pursuing your own dreams, it means you're not pursuing someone else's. And there, there isn't, you know, prior to like five or 10 years ago when the entrepreneur thing became more popular, there wasn't a model uh, in their mind that they could mimic like that because everybody in their own life, uh, you know, kind of did the same corporate climbing thing. It wasn't even like a choice. It was just like the thing that everybody else did. It, it, it makes sense too why kind of bringing this full circle as why, you know, you go to a party or any specific event and you'll have a group of people, you know, gathered it, it i just i think the word alpha is very weird just personally i think people who, who use the word alpha to relate to themselves i think are super dweeby and douchebaggy too mm -hmm. uh but speaking in the term alpha right mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense why these people gather around groups of alphas to be uh told what to do whenever that was kind of pre-molded for them throughout their basically all of their development you know how easily are we how how easily are we molded or taught whatever it might be from a age five to 17, 18? That is, that's like, that's the biggest chunk of our development. And as we're trying to formulate our opinions and our thoughts and where we get these from at these ages, you don't formulate your own opinions. You don't think mm -hmm. for yourself. You're simply taking in information on a consistent basis and your brain's trying to process this information. And then you spit out whatever you're, thought process might look like at that time. And on mm -hmm. top of that, it's being mixed with, you know, obviously times of your life going through puberty, switching grades, switching yeah. schools, you know, obviously influence from your parents, influence from your friends. So you're getting hit with like 30 to 50 different angles also as you're growing up. And I don't think we give nearly enough, we don't have nearly enough patience or systems in play for our youth to have uh, thoughts of their, for themselves or to think for themselves. 
which is also why I'm real big on getting kids into play therapy from a very young age, getting kids into counseling from a very young age, not because anything is necessarily wrong, rather just to continue to open up new perspectives for these kids to think for themselves. Often too, parents are going to push what their perspectives is onto their kids. It's just, it's just nature. It's nature. Yeah. Cause they, cause they care about them. They're, they're but trying. That's not healthy, but they, they, well, not we gotta recognize yeah. that's not healthy. Like I, I'm always like, this is something I'm super aware of because my mom did a great job with, with it for me. I remember growing up and saying, mom, why am I dumb? She goes, you're not dumb. You're just not good at school. She goes, stop gating yourself off that metric. That's not your metric. Of, mm-hmm. That's not your metric of intelligence. And I was able to recognize that from an early age. So it's like, I didn't think, and potentially what led me into the same perspective as I is, I didn't think that there's only one metric for being smart or for being intelligent. And when I learned that from an early age, it really allowed me to prosper and have a lot more self-belief and a lot more self-confidence that when I did have a seat or whatever that looked like, it didn't wear on me hard because I know that this is not my, my specific expertise. Yeah, and it's interesting um, when you talk about you know, various forms of intelligence, because, uh, you know, I'll look at, at the people that I played baseball with in college and, you know, athletes will have a reputation of, oh, he's just a dumb jock, blah, blah, blah. But there's like a very clear divide in terms of the people who are very good competitors and the people who are good students. And it wasn't that the people who are good competitors were dumb. They're not dumb. It's just, they understand the world through their hands and through their bodies. And, and they understand it more primally than people who do really well in school. And so, you know, my most successful teammates might not be able to list the months in sequential order in all seriousness, but they're still making, you know, eight figure salaries um, because they're able to throw baseballs in the place they want, you know, at the speed they want, um, getting the rotations that they want. And, um, and it, it really is a different form of intelligence that allows them to, um, you know, to, succeed in a non-academic uh, setting. If you think about it too, uh, Floyd Mayweather can't read and is a billionaire. Yeah. Because you yeah, don't need the, Yeah. The dude's literally made a billion dollars off not getting hit in the face and punching other people in the face. Yeah. And, and what people don't realize, people will look at him and they'll say, well, he's an idiot. He can't read. And what people don't realize when they're stuck in the middle of a hierarchy, because people don't realize that they're, they're in a position within a hierarchy, absolutely. And when you're stuck in the middle of a hierarchy, you evaluate yourself based on the skills of other people within the middle of the hierarchy. And so if you're in the middle of the hierarchy, you better know how to read, because if you're in the middle of the hierarchy and you can't read, good luck getting a job at a corporation and you haven't like created a business that generates income on your behalf. Um, and so it's very easy for, for people in the middle of the hierarchy to look at leaders, to look at uh, Which is want, why people stay there. Yeah, it, because because they haven't figured out that the game's changed. They haven't figured out that, okay, so to get from, um, from point A to point B, it requires a certain set of skills. But to get from point B to point F, it requires an entirely different set of skills. Sometimes they're opposed to the set of skills that, requ- that are required to get from point A to point B. And so all they're able to do is see that the people who are at point D don't have the skills that were required to get to point B, they haven't quite realized yet. Yeah, it's because you don't need the skills that are required from to get from point A to point B to get to point D. Um, it's an entirely different game, which is why people, um, you know, can look at presidents and they say, "Oh, he's really dumb." Uh, look at what he, you know, look at what he tweeted. Look at what he said. 
uh, or they can look at, at anybody in an authoritative position and find many, many ways to criticize these people because they, they're incapable of uh, of rationalizing that the person made a lot more money because he or she's playing a different game than you. And you will never be that successful playing the game that you're playing. So do you think rather than uh, people spending more time trying to play the same game, we should all start focusing our attentions on playing our own game? If so, what does that look like? I don't know that that's true. I think so. I think certain people are oriented to playing their own game, but, but you have to understand that it's very stressful to play your own game. It's much, much easier. But, but is it stressful like that? But is it stressful to play your own game or is it stressful because that's what is being taught and that's what's been taught to that that is stressful? You got to think because if at age five, you're taught to play one game and then all of a sudden you're taught to play another game, is the game really more stressful than the stress that you have to deal with going into work, your little cubicle job, worried about your boss trying to make you over work over that day, have to work the weekend day, all this, there's already people, stress is at an all time high actually right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But to say it would be more stressful actually sounds counterintuitive. It could actually, in my opinion, be far less stressful when you find yourself in the realm that you're actually supposed to be in. The most stressful part is, however, breaking the monotony monotony of the particular path that you're already on and the particular particular opinions that you've already adopted in entering into your new perspective. So I don't actually think it's more stressful, but we perceive it to be more stressful simply because of the current stress that we're already dealing with. And it's just added, added, added stress. I think it depends. I think it depends who you are. And so I think it's, it's very clear, you know, talking to you, talking to me that you have an independent mind and you have the ability to formulate your own opinions um, you know, that are truly yours, which means you have a perspective of the world um, that can't be taken from you. It's your perspective, but you don't realize that most people don't have a unique perspective of the world. Most people grow up only able to interpret the world through other people's uh, eyes, whether they realize it or not. And so when you- And, and it's that, that has to be based off consumption though, right? We, it, I mean, that that's true, but then again, like, I'm not, I don't believe that I'm very, I'm a whole lot. I think I'm special in my own ways, but I'm not the, the, the bell curve. None mm-hmm. of us are too far off from each other. That's another thing. We all got to remember at the end of the day, we're all still humans. We still can't be too far off from each other. I didn't just wake up overnight with all these new perspectives and ideas. This has been years of thought, of practice, of understanding, of formulating my own opinions. I also believe that we can change and course correct. Our, the path of our lives, and anybody can do this in, within particular reason if they take the time to do so. I mean, in order to formulate your own opinion, you have to stop consuming others' opinions. The reason right, right, I, right. how I was able to formulate my opinion and to carry myself how I'm carrying myself right now to lead my community of Iron Valley Barbell and leader, lead the group of guys that I'm with is I got away from the, this pandemic for two weeks. I didn't think anything about it. I allowed myself to just view facts and what was factual and what was actually going on, not to be manipulated by the media or anybody else that I follow's opinions to actually formulate my own opinion. That's how I actually formulated my opinion based off of everything that's going on right now and how I'm conducting myself off everything that's going on right now. I allotted myself the time to gain that perspective. I simply feel like people don't allot themselves the time or are already pre-taught to not allow themselves the time to just listen to other people's opinions because the news is more flashy. It's easier to look and watch the news for 30 minutes. It's easier to watch Fox News or CNN News for 30 minutes than it is to sit by yourself for two hours and think about it. 
Yeah, um, but I think the way that I look at it is the world is infinitely complex, right? There's so much stuff going on. And what that means is, you know, like you have a bell curve, there's going to be a range of how well every human understands it, right? So not every human is going to be, even if they apply themselves 100%, not every human is going to be able to perceive the world with the degree of accuracy that the next person can. So if you line up a thousand people, right? And you say, okay, all of you thousand people think independently. Well, you're going to find that of those thousand people, like 10 to 30 of them or five to 30 of them or one to 30 of them have ideas about the world that are substantially more advanced than everybody else's. And so what everybody else has the opportunity to do is, do you want to be independent and compete with those people who have, um, substantially superior understandings of what's going on than you, or do you want to join them and work on their team, even though they're going to profit off of, of you being their teammate, but because they they understand, because the gap of their understanding and your understanding is so significant, it might benefit you to latch onto that person the same way that, you know, other people who train at Iron Valley Barbell look at you. They're like, well, this guy really understands positioning. This guy really understands how to create a good gym environment. I want to learn from this guy. I want to train under this guy. It's because they perceive that the gap in knowledge between them and you is so large that rather than go and do their own thing, they'd want to learn under you at least for a period of time. So I think that there's, um, there's a benefit to that. There's a reason why most people um, follow that path. Now you in particular have a very high, um, very high tolerance for uncertainty, right? Where most people do not have that degree of tolerance for uncertainty. And it's really, really interesting when I talk to uh, various friends who are going through higher stress environments. So, so, so some friends like suing, you know, going through lawsuits or something like that. And it's very clear that the games that people play in the modern world um, basically test how comfortable you're going to be with uncertainty. And if you're not uncomfortable with uncertainty, you're almost always going to make the trade-off of I'm going to go work on someone else's team because that person can. But what's so crazy? What's so crazy about that though, Alex? Is there is no such thing as certainty. That's the thing. Certainty was only certainty. This is a we develop certainty. We develop the idea of what we think is certain. That that right. was that was that was established by us. We right. established, oh, this is what's certain. Nobody, nobody planned for the pandemic. Fox News didn't know. Donald Trump didn't know. Maybe China knew. But most of these people didn't know about what was going on, about the happening of the coronavirus, and now the world's upside down. If you don't know by now that nothing's certain in life, you're 15 steps behind. You've got to realize that everything is uncertain. So when you're latching on to what you believe is certainty, all you're latching on to is somebody else's beliefs of what they believe is a certainty. And that's all based off your core values and principles. The only reason I'm able to make my, my opinions and my certainty is myself is because I've decided that for me, I have a couple different, obviously God is the first thing, faith, mm -hmm. that, that, that holds me steady like a rock. But right. outside of that is because I've formulated these opinions by myself and they're, they align directly with my values. That's right. how I can be so certain. But then again, if you want to base now, if you want to follow me, at least you know that my values are not manipulated by the dollar or anybody else. My values are, are based upon my own thoughts, my own, my own thought process. Now, if you choose to watch Fox News, CNN, Trump, follow anybody blindly, know that these are, you're also following people whose perspectives are being manipulated by the dollar. And we know that, like we actually know that for sure but we still continue to follow blindly. Well, and, and so, you know, this is really interesting because one thing that I noticed when I was playing baseball is that 
a lot of the people who are my most successful teammates and the most, you know, at every level, a lot of them were much more religious than, you know, the next person. And being of the, the mindset of valuing evolutionary psychology and believing that nothing really happens at scale by accident. Um, I didn't believe it, I didn't believe God favored Christians to advance in professional sports. What I did believe was that <clears throat> the belief in a deity, the belief in, in something greater, some framework greater than what you see at the, in the physical world conferred the believer with some degree of stability to offset the instability of life. And mm. so I think one reason why it's so much easier for you to manage the uncertainty that you manage, even though you could probably do it prior to finding God, is the fact that you go to church every Sunday. And, that, and you, as you said, it stabilizes you. It, it gives you a foundation. If people don't have that, it's, it's even more challenging, I think, for them to, um, you know, to go on their own and deal with the uncertainties of life. But also for people who've who've depended depended on that degree of certainty, you know that that degree of, of faithful foundation their entire life um, might not be equipped with the skills to manage the uncertainty of a, of a different terrain. And so I think there's a very very rare middle ground for people who um, they have tools to manage the uncertainty, but they have the um, desire to experience what is uncertain. And I think, I think most of the reasons or, or a lot of the reasons why people do things that seem to be inexplicable or believe things that are contradictory, um, you know, despite ample evidence saying that you're wrong, is that the mind, the, um, the mind avoids situations that can push it towards short circuitry, right? And so it knows that just like you know when you're, when you're performing a movement, you're, you know, you know, don't get your shoulder in this position because like it's healthy now, but if I get it in this position, it might not be, it might not be healthy. Your brain knows the same thing. And that's why people have challenges dealing with difficult thoughts because anytime a, a difficult thought is basically a thought that challenges the framework that was presented to you at some point from the age of like five to 20 years old, for the most part, people have very, very, very strong difficulty grappling with these challenges the same way they'd have difficulty performing a movement that they'd never done before. Their, their mind is going to revert to performing the movement the way that they know how, and they're going to fight, fight, fight uh, the, a new framework development that, that tells them to do it a different way. They're going to always try to fit the, the new way of doing it into the old way of doing it for safety purposes. And it's a, a very specific type of person who can step back and say, okay, I understand that this mental movement pattern or I understand that this physical movement pattern was created from this, this period of time to this period of time to produce this end. But I also realize that I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to do a different physical movement pattern. I'm trying to create a different neural network pattern for a different end, which is going to See, require retraining. See what I find. Yeah, that boom. Yes. Right there, which is going to require retraining. That's what I'm going to, because what I'm finding and what I see from my observations is it's not that people uh, are trying and then failing with the new mindset or the more, the, the new perspective, the new approach or whatever you want to look like, whatever you want, whatever it looks like. It's rather so it's the lack of even opening the mind up to see a new perspective. Have you mm -hmm. ever said something to somebody if they're a, a pro Trump supporter and you say one thing about Donald Trump, they're immediately, like, they don't even open their mind to see another perspective. They're immediately, shut off to the idea of whatever that perspective might look like. And they react like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast solely and directly off of emotion. Mm -hmm. I feel 
and, and I actually wrote this before and I had a little post about this. Don't say things like I'm poor. Uh, don't say things that I'm broke. It's, it's, I don't have the money right now, but I will have the money. It's mm-hmm. when we choose to just say, oh, I can't do that or I'll never be able to do that. What we do is shut our minds off from the possibility of ever, whatever actually could happen or mm-hmm. would happen for the fact being that we never give ourselves time to actually process the thoughts of what could be. So I think a lot of it is too, is the lack of actually taking ownership of a new perspective or opportunity. Well, and you know, people might not understand their minds as well as they understand their bodies. And so I think if you took, you know, a middle-aged man away from his desk job and you say, okay, Jim, we're going to stretch your hamstrings. Oh, you can't touch the floor and you actually can't come close to touching the floor. You're like, literally, if you bend over and, and lock your legs, you're a foot from touching the floor. And because you're a foot from away from touching the floor, that's going to give you back problems. That's why your lower back hurts. And so we're going to work on your flexibility. So you gave him a reason for improving his flexibility because there's a reason why he can't bend over and touch his toes. And it's because the environment that he'd been in for the previous 30 years gave him no reason to be able to touch his toes. And so his body is not structured to touch his toes. So there's a pain, there's pain um, and immobility that's limiting him from reaching his potential because his environment never forced him to, to do anything of that nature. So it's easier to convince him, Hey Jim, like you're physically immobile because of what you do. So here's how you fix your physical immobility that's causing you physical problems. What's harder for people to understand is their mind works exactly the same way. Where if, you're, if your mind is used to seeing things in, from one perspective over and over and over and over again, you lock in mental immobility. And, and your mind will have the same degree of resistance as your hamstrings have if you haven't stretched it for you know, 10, 20, 30 years, which a lot of people probably don't when they start making money. It's like they turn their brains off and they just go on autopilot. And, and what you'll find is if you want to grow as an athlete, you need to be mobile. You need to be able to go through all ranges of motion. And if you want to be intelligent as a person, you need to be cognitively nimble. You need to be able to look at things from like almost every perspective. And I've, I play games like that with myself. They're almost like mental mobility games where I'll look at a subject and I'm, and I will say, um, there's, yeah, I can look at this from 30 different angles. What's the opposite of what I think? This is what I think. What's the opposite? What's the opposite point of view? How can I rationalize the opposite point of view? Most people never try, never question their own views and try to ra- and try to like argue with themselves and try to see it mm-hmm. from the other perspective and, t- and take something that's you know universally seen as horrific and try to find some some bright light in it or seeing something that's seen as universally uh, great and try to find something bad in it. And I always try to keep my mind sharp by looking at things from a uh, uh, you know, multiple angles that don't lock me into one standard view. Right. And I think that's what was allowed me to make transitions from playing pro sports to working at a hedge fund, from working at a hedge fund to working at Google, from working at Google to working at a cryptocurrency firm, or all of these, this step is not entirely logical, but because, um, because of my cognitive mobility, it's been easier uh, to switch, just like, you know, it's like, you might be a really good football player. That doesn't mean you're, you're going to be a good basketball player. Oh, you, you were great. Oh, and you're a good baseball player. Huh? Why is that? What are the, what are the, um, commonalities between that? Oh, okay. You can run fast, jump high, move well. Hmm. Okay. So now I see why you can do it, but people they're, they're stuck in like one track where they don't realize that they're cognitively immobile. They just think that, that they're right. And, and, and there's people, there's people, there's three different people there. There's people who do what you do for the, the productivity and positive what comes out of that. There's people who don't move, who can't see through that perspective. And there's also people that know how to manipulate that. And that's something that also we have to take into consideration. There's people out there who can understand how to see things through different perspectives and they can turn it and pitch it in a certain way that's going to manipulate and control you. 
And the easiest way for us to understand that right now is going full circle again to mass media. Yeah. That's, that's literally going full circle to mass media. That entire, that entire conversation that you basically just had right there goes mm -hmm. full circle into, into what is being portrayed to us now from mass media. Right. And it's easy to see somebody like Zach and you say, okay, Zach can log press 275 pounds. He could squat 700 pounds, deadlift 700 pounds. He's really strong. How does he manipulate his environment? And it's, it's primal. So we can, it's easier to identify with Zach. Um, you know, even if people aren't lifting half the weight that he is, which I would imagine the average person is probably not lifting half of the weight Zach is, but you can see, oh, wow, he's a, he's a physically strong person. He's manipulating his environment. What people don't realize is the people who are 1000 times stronger than Zach in the, in the real world are people who are able to manipulate millions of people. You know, if Zach has 15,000 followers, um, mainstream media has 150 million followers, right? So there's literally a 10,000 X difference between the audience that the mainstream media has and the audience that Zach Homel has. And so there are people, in fact, who are programming content for those 150 million people. And so if you happen to be a multi-billionaire who owns a 25% stake in one of these media conglomerates or 20% stake in one of these media conglomerates, all of a sudden your ability to manipulate or control or adjust your environment, it doesn't have to do with at all with the amount of weight you can log press or the amount of weight you can lift off the ground. It has to do with how many people's minds you can alter or adjust to see issues the way you want them to see them. So they vote the way you want them to vote or they support the issues that they want, that, that you want them to support. And, and it makes it easier when they don't know what's going on. And so this has been, this has been going on for decades, at least going back to William Randolph Hearst, that's documented for how he built up the Hearst empire with yellow journalism, but it can, you know, you can trace it even further back, um, you know, to, to, you know, whether, whether you don't believe in various, um, you know, cults, that have arisen or whether you, whether you happen to classify certain religions as cults um, and, and you know, this, the, the priests or the equivalent thereof um, are these manipulative people who are delivering, you know, essentially media messages to their congregation uh, or their, their following, you know, week after week after week to get them to do the thing they want them to do, whether it's give them money, support their, you know, worship their, you know, their religion, whatever it is that, that, that it is, you see these commonalities over and over and over again. Sit pause. I got to pee real quick. Okay. We will pause at. Back from the bathroom break. We have Zach and Alex. So, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, kind of avoiding um, other people, other people's thoughts that are going, you know, trying to be planted into your mind and, and developing a, a view of the world that's unique to you. And, um, you know, whether, whether that's, you know, within, you know, your reach now or not, that's one thing we can put it aside. Um, one thing that's certain that, that we can agree to is that if you're competing at a high level, um, even if you put everyone else's thoughts aside, you still have to deal with the thoughts that are going on in your own mind. <laughs> and those thoughts um, can range from extremely positive or overly positive to extremely negative and, over, and inhibitedly uh, negative. And one thing that I have found, you know, both competing at, at high levels myself, uh, but then also being around other people who are, are elite level competitors is they almost all have the ability, if not all have the ability to optimize their mindset for their particular situation. And so for baseball, like for me in particular, um, 
baseball is a sport that requires confidence. Sports that have a lot of people who are seen as cocky, arrogant assholes by other people are actually sports that require confidence. You cannot play them if you lack confidence. And one thing that'll, and one, yeah. one thing, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is when you're nervous and, and correct me if you've had a different experience, Zach, but when you're nervous, the nervous tension that you have will first impact your fine motor skills. And so if you're nervous, you should still be able to run fast, if not faster. You should still be able to lift as heavy, if not heavier. But one thing that's going to be really, really hard is to control your fingers as well. And so what happens when you, when you lose control of your fingers as well, when you're a little bit nervous, is it makes it really, really hard to throw a baseball where you want to throw it. It makes it really, really hard to putt a putt where you want to putt it. It uh, makes it a little bit harder to shoot a free throw the way you want to shoot it, but a little bit less so. Um, and it makes it hard to uh, kick field goals as well. And so you'll see, you'll notice in pressure situations, there's very specific sports and very specific points within those sports matches where the nerves uh, manifest themselves into the athletes choking. And you'll also find that the athletes who tend to do the best, you know, whether it's having the ground ball hit to them in the ninth inning, whether it's sinking the, the seven foot foot putt, uh, to win the tournament or whether it's kicking the 42 year old, uh, year 42 yard field goal to win the game is these people all have rock solid minds sometimes to the point of like arrogance or, or like, or narcissism because their environment is so uncertain, so filled with pressure that they need to overcome all or as many negative thoughts as they possibly can to perform in that particular situation. Dude, I, I love that perspective. And that was often how I always um, how I always found myself in sports and think speaking directly from baseball. I can remember this from little leagues. I remember I got moved up from when the kids pitched to you to when or when the parents teach, pitched to you to the kids pitched to you. And I was playing for the all-star team. And I remember the coach told me, you want the ball hit to you for the last play of the game. But what, for whatever reason, when he told me that something that was so just basic, whatever it was, and never even thought of it that way until that time, that you want the ball to be hit to you. You mm -hmm. want to be in that position at the end of the game. It really helped me develop and kind of like calm my nerves in high-pressure situations because I want to be in this position. I've actually done all of the work that I've done to put myself in this particular position. So it's been easier for me to rise to occasions, whether it's been baseball, basketball, football, uh, boxing, powerlifting, strongman, to rise to the occasions knowing that I am in that particular position at that particular moment on purpose. And mm -hmm. I've actually done everything I was supposed to do to put me in that moment on purpose. Right. Are there nerves? Are there anxious energy? Well, of course. I'm, there's always going to be that. There's always going to be nervous. There's always going to be this anxious, anxious, anxious energy. But when I was able to reframe my mindset to know that I'm supposed to be in this particular position, it made it a lot easier for me to excel in that position. So but I, mean, I want to kind of talk a little bit about the value real quick. I want to talk about values real quick because it's got two parts to what you said is we are telling people to learn how to think for themselves, you know, to make these thoughts to themselves. And we talked about how sometimes, and what you would say is sometimes it's almost impossible for people to do it because of all of their, uh, all their experiences and situations that they've had in their life and how they've been dictated and controlled uh, throughout the entirety without even really recognizing it, right? Mm -hmm. But I think one way to start is by 
recognizing or creating core values for yourself. Because when you begin to set values for yourself, you can begin then to set metrics for yourself. Mm-hmm. If, my, if I have values and I hold true to my values and I base my metrics off of that, I'm going to be able to start to adopt either more productive opinions or better opinions for myself because mm-hmm. they're based off something that truly means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. Make sure you're basing those values and those metrics truly off what makes you happy. I see, I challenged my team for this last said, what's your metric of success? And you know, you get money, right? you had to throw things out that basically culture is taught about. I said, really? Because uh, you got that new car, you know, I don't really talk about it much. Does it still bring you happiness? Well, I mean, I like to try it, you know, but, but they're starting to realize that's not actually every single day. That's not their actual true metric of success or true mm-hmm. metric of happiness. So yeah. I find in a lot of the people that I mentor and work with that they're actually basing success off the metric that was never set for them. Yeah, and well, it's really hard to be happy doing things when you're doing things based off other people's metric of happiness. Right. And, and what a lot of people don't realize is those, those ideas of happiness have been planted in their mind. Like there's a reason why people, the, you know, the ad spend per year is like $500 billion a year or something like that in the U S it's like, it's really expensive to get, get your ideas implanted into the minds of people who you want to buy from you or work for you. And so a lot of money within our economy is spent in turn into essentially seed planting these ideas so that the person who has them actually thinks that they've autonomously decided that they want that big truck or something like that. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, like most people, uh, and, and nobody's going to have like an, a fully independent, you know, uh, isolated siloed mindset because that's just not how people think. Or even I, opinion I, or yeah. opinion, right? Like, you know, a lot of my opinions we talked about, like they're my opinions, but it's, what's weird is me and you share a lot of the same ones. Right. Because we've independently found, it's like we've independently sanity tested ourselves and, and kind of come to the same conclusion. What's, what's crazy is I was listening to this uh, YouTube video of like Jay Cutler talking about, you know, his mindset and his approach through training. And, and I, as I was hearing him talk, I'm like, I, this guy thinks really similarly to, to Zach and me and I've never met him, right? It's like literally the first time I've actually heard the guy talk for more than 15 seconds. I heard him talk for like 15 minutes. I'm like, yep, all that makes sense. I understand completely like where you're coming from. Um, you know, you're using, you know, you're channeling this sort of insecurity to do that and you're open about it. And like, I understand I, like everything you're saying makes sense. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, when they understand uh, performance psychology, you know, they, they talk about digging deep. They think, you know, okay, so like if I want to do this, um, this is the mindset that, that I, that I need to have, but they don't realize that the people who are elite performers struggle with the same, like a lot of the same, they grapple with a lot of the same things, you know? So you look at Zach, you look at me and you think, oh, they're, they're, they're successful, confident, whatever, strong. Uh, their minds must be strong because, because good leaders will make the people who follow them feel like they're almost invincible, right? Boom. But they're not right. Boom. And, and, and so that's the thing is like, if you're a leader and you make your followers feel like you're invincible, all of a sudden it's lower risk for you to follow that person and be a subordinate in that person's environment, which is why people allow other people to set frameworks for them is because those other people make them feel safer, 
right? And so we have a need for safety and security, just like we have a need for accomplishment. And so if I feel safe and secure around Zach, because he's very alpha, very dominant, he always seems like he knows what's going on. I'm more likely to latch onto him. He's more likely if I'm good and, and oriented well to profit off of me working with him or for him. Um, and so ideally that's a mutually beneficial relationship. Now it's not mutually beneficial if Zach is so charismatic and sociopathic to where he's like, okay, well, Alex is just blindly following me. I'm going to have him do like ABC. Cause like I own this guy and, and like he, he's not smart enough to figure out that I'm actually, you know, getting 99% of this. Guess what y'all your political party is doing that though. Yeah. <laughs> I right. love it because that's literally when you are removed from politics, you can make such logical observations mm -hmm. of people who are overly invested into politics, yeah. especially now with the freedom that social media gives all you goofballs to just base all your opinions off of. I read sometimes I'll go on Facebook and I have like these 10 people that I follow who literally only post basically negative stuff and they create controversy on their pages, but they don't have the same friend followings but they all say the exact same shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's because, and it's really interesting how you, if you listen to how a lot of mainstream podcasts or a lot of mainstream news content is done, um, even, you know, if you, if you listen to how uh, executives talk, or if you listen to how, um, you know, religious figures talk, they talk in a way that lets their audience believe they have a level of understanding of what's going to happen in the future that they don't have, right? Because the future is inherently scary. The future is inherently uncertain. So if you listen to a CEO talk, he's going to speak with more confidence than he has, that the next few quarters are going to go a certain way. If you listen to a president talk, he's going to speak with more confidence than he has that certain things are going to go a certain way. If you go to church, you're going to, you're going to probably hear a guy who speaks with more confidence than he actually has about certain things happening. Right. And, and we, this is the dynamic between leaders and followers. And what people don't realize is if the leaders actually have to compete on their own, they actually doubt themselves, right? Because they've, they've spent their whole lives uh, believing that Michael Jordan is, is a, a demagogue. Like, like he's just the elite, the pinnacle. He never fears anything. Um, you know, the idolization though, that comes within us, you know, that's the thing too, that that's a whole new topic, right? When, when we idolize other people, and we, we, we view them as superior based off of, you know, when you get into first getting the lifting weights, you see a guy bench 500 pounds, you, you begin like, oh, that's, that's great. And mm -hmm. that guy's superior or whatever that might look like in, in that framework and in your mind. But it becomes extremely unhealthy when you begin to idolize that. You know, that's just, that's what it is, is, is you're creating a false god. Well, but there's, there's a flip side because everything's a double-edged sword. And so when you realize that most people learn through mimicry, then what, and, and this is the importance of positive role models for kids when they're younger is most people learn through mimicry and, and before you can learn to see the world as it is, you will see the world through the eyes of other people. And so if you idolize somebody, that's because that person has a skill set or, or something that your mind thinks is valuable to also have. And so you will, without, without any degree of vitalization or without any degree of mimicry, you're kind of lost for direction at a young age. And so it, it is totally understandable that people will idolize, you know, and I think Zach, you and I talked about this, like whoever, whatever athlete you thought was the coolest when you were 11 or 12 years old, you're always going to think that guy's the coolest. Um, and Isn't that the truth. And, and I really think it has to do with the course of human development where where as you're going through puberty, 
the, the dominant alphas for, uh, that you can model behavior off of when you're going through puberty leave an, an indelible mark on you for the rest of your life. And, and I think that's true with sports. I think it's true with music. If you look at how music transforms, a lot of the people who influence subsequent musicians were very, very popular um, when, when the next generation of musicians was like 10, 11, 12 years old. So if you think about like, you know, when were the Beach Boys popular? It's like the Beach Boys were popular when like, I think the, the class, if I'm remembering my rock history correctly, it's like when, when the people in the Clash and when the people in the Ramones were in middle school, the Beach Boys were really popular. And so obviously for them, the Beach Boys would be like the coolest of the cool. We're going to model what we create after them. And if you listen to the music of those early 80s bands, you can see how the Beach Boys has, has influenced them. And I then if do, you, however, now think that that tie is changing. I think it's changing some with the, with the advancements in technology for social media. I feel like we have now, if you want to see it through that perspective, more people to idolize. And with more people to idolize, we have different perspectives to idolize. You have more. Yeah, that's true. It, you're you're going to have, um, you know, a more nuanced, uh, you know, way to see the world. And, and probably some of those, uh, some of those idols that you have are, are going to be like, like Zach and me, where, where they're encouraging you to, to see things, you know, from your own perspective. Um, I think that's definitely changed as, uh, as media has become more targeted. And, uh, and Do you and, think that does more or less for our growth? You and I, so growth as a human being more, growth as a podcast or YouTube channel, potentially less. Well, I mean, it's what's your competition. Thought? Are you just saying like, what's the, what's the benefit of competition? Being on psychology purposes. If people, we, you've talked this whole podcast and I've talked this whole podcast, basically how people just follow others blindly, mm -hmm. where we're sitting here saying, hey, we're challenging you to think for yourself and think through your own perspectives. Would we gather a more mass following? This is just hypothetically speaking, mm -hmm. right? We told people exactly how they're supposed to live their life. This is the 10 steps to manhood. You know, you see so. all this stuff, all, all these stuff based off individuals' values and whatever that may look like. But yeah. do you think that we could have a larger or more stern impact if we had more direct uh, thought, basically opinions and thought processes? Uh, yeah, on the whole, I do. And I think if you look at the, the different types of people who are popular, I think that the message that they craft is a little bit... Um, it's mass market, right? And so, uh, you know, wake up at five o'clock, take a cold shower, drink black coffee, you know, fast. Only eat meat. Right. And it's like, and, and you have to realize it's, it has to do with the, how, how easily it is to transmit an idea. So the ideas that we're talking about are more complex. So they're almost like a large file that you're, that you're sending to somebody else. So it's like our ideas are a 60 minute video clip. Whereas the, the do this, do that ideas are the equivalent of a GIF. So if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna send a 60 minute video versus a GIF to a hundred different friends, well, the 60 minute video, you know, I'm not even gonna have the bandwidth to send it to a hundred people and a hundred people aren't even gonna have the bandwidth to receive it. And if a hundred people receive it, they're not gonna have the time to watch 60 minutes of it. And so if you just think about the nature of how ideas get disseminated, the simpler the idea, the easier it is to be shared and for people to find commonality in it, which is why when you look at the most popular tweets, they tend to be more basic. You know, X, Y is always like this. You know, what do you, you know, if you're not like this, you suck, um, you know, mic drop. It's and, also extremely biased, right? It's always right. the most biased 
conversations. It's always the most biased opinions that seem to hold the most clout. Because what it does is it draws that harsh divide too between right and wrong. And, it different, and then it puts people in the state of mind that their opinion, if it's biasly, if they have this, say Alex, you put um, on, on your social media channel that anybody who lifts weights is gonna hurt their back. And you have a little bit of a following, they're listening to your opinion. When you say that, now this is what happened with the deadlift. Everybody thinks deadlifting is gonna hurt their back. Nobody pays attention to how many times they've been over a day to pick shit up though. So if deadlifting truly is going to hurt your back, why do you deadlift every single day? But at some time in that person's life, they've told them that deadlifting hurts their back. Someone at some time in their life has been told that squatting is going to hurt their knees or that bench pressing is going to hurt their shoulders. Mm-hmm. So when they are giving these extreme harsh bias opinions and easy outs to not perform the exercise, movement, or thought process, extremely easy for them to crawl that divide to say no this is bad this is wrong and also in that moment they feel superior because they have a superior quote-unquote knowledge base than what you have or and if you give people the opportunity to be lazy they're almost always going to take it so if you give someone the the opportunity to not do the thing that he or she already doesn't want to do whether it's not squat not deadlift. Uh, most people like bench pressing, but they're going to take that, right? If you told people like, Hey, you know, running is really bad for you. You know, there could be a hundred studies and those hundred studies, like 30 of them could say running's great. You know, 60 of them could say running's okay. And 10 of them could say running's terrible. Well, guess what? If someone doesn't want to run and they see the study for running's terrible, they're going to say, yes, totally. I totally get it. I'm not going to run anymore. And it's like, Which okay, is why I'm telling you, because you tweeted this the other day and I saw it too. How many percent of Americans are just not wanting to go back to work? And that's why they're saying the things they're saying on social media. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Right. Maybe. Like, There's no maybe. There is most definitely people I've directly communicated with who's making more money off of their unemployment and stimulus checks than actually going to work. They have no reason to go back to work. They have no want to go back to work. So they're just basing their opinion off of, well, my life's easier. Why would I want to do that? Yeah, that and that's that's a tough uh, tough mindset. That, these people exist and they exist yeah, in numbers and their voice is loud because you're taking away their comfortability. They're comfortable in that moment. You're like, let's get the economy going. They're like, you want everybody to die. Right? Oh, they, they can't yeah. actually come up with a logic thought. They right, just want, right, you right, want right, everybody right, to die right, if you right, want the economy right, running. Right, well, right. No, I just want to get back to work so I can feed my family because I can't live right. off of how you're living. You know, that, that $300 a month doesn't do it for me or $1,200 doesn't do it for me, right? Right. Yeah. But since you're it, trying to take that from them, right. what are they going to They're going to try to release as much as they can to try to keep you in your place and your, right. your position. But they don't, but see, they, they, they have not have enough time in master manipulation to actually get these people to think through this process. But what it does is you have a great bit of people right now in America who wants to get America running again. Mm-hmm. But if you see the loudest voices are the ones saying, you want everybody to die. You want this. I see, I have belief in humanity. I think for the most part, most people don't want other people to die from the coronavirus. I don't want nobody I know to die from the coronavirus and just nobody in general. I just, that's not what I want. Will people die from it? Most definitely. People die from shit every single day. However, with that being said, if I say I'm ready to get this economy back rolling again, that doesn't mean because I want people to die. That's because I've formulated and I'm 
generating my own opinion based off of my own thoughts and not based off of your idea of being more comfortable in your particular situation, staying at home because this quarantine has been good for you. Well, if this right. quarantine has been good for you, I can, I can have a dozen other people whose this quarantine has been a living hell for them. Mm -hmm. And they're dying to get things to go back, get, get things started back up again. And if it doesn't happen before long, they're going to find them. They're going to off themselves as well. Yeah. So I'm not saying risk of suicides is going to be higher than the risk of the coronavirus either. I'm not stating none of that. But what I am stating is people will say things just because they don't want you to mess with their comfortable lifestyle that they're particularly living in this, in this particular situation. Right. And what's really interesting is if you, if you go through adulthood and you start to realize that a lot of adults' reactions really mimic, you know, children or babies reactions to a lot of things. And it's, it's like, it's crazy, but it's an interesting mind game that I play. It's like, let me imagine the seven year old man as an, as an 11 year old child. And this is actually like a, a really uh, helpful lens to understand politics with, because, you know, politics, as far as I'm concerned, you know, in the United States is like a bunch of 60, 70 year old people who are, it's basically like a bunch of 12 year old kids who are in the bodies of rich 60 to 70 year old men and women. And they're basically playing the same rumor games, the same, you know, childish games that would be played at a middle school. They just happen to be like United States senators and Congress, Congress people. And they just happen to be really, really good at it. That's another thing that we don't give politics enough for. Yeah. We all know there are a bunch of thieving, lying motherfuckers. Yeah. Biden, want Biden for president. But three weeks ago, you said he was an idiot and shit. It's like, it's just, they blankly show you how fake they are to your face. Yeah. If your best friend, if you and your best friend, right, are teamed up together and we're like, we are, we don't like Johnny, this, that, and a third. And then three days later, your buddy's like, by the way, Johnny's the greatest guy. I fully endorse him with everything he says. You ain't going to believe this motherfucker. You're like, right. you're fake as fuck. Yet, yet, we as a whole kind of, well, well you know, it's just kind of the way it is. You know, it's just right. the way it is. We don't and actually fucking think for ourselves that if this happened directly in our life, we would not stand for this. Nobody right. with a value system set up would ever stand for this. Right. And the reason people do it is because the, the disseminators of this propaganda make them feel comfortable. And so what, what buckles people emotionally is if somebody who makes you feel good is lying to you, right? So a lot of times when people get in trouble in relationships, whether it's romantic relationships or work relationships, um, they want to believe comfortable lies. It feels better to, to not question the thing that seems a little bit off, right? So their intuition might tell them this doesn't seem right, but the, the simply contemplating the alternative reality is more painful. Um, just like we talked about earlier, you know, contemplating wow. an alternative reality. Stay, how many people out there right now are living in relationships that they know they're not supposed, their intuition is done told them they're not supposed to be in, but they don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation because it's hard. And how many people are stuck in the workplace right now because they don't want to have that uncomfortable position with their boss? How many people are being disrespected by their coworkers right now who don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation with their coworkers because it's hard? We right. have to start learning how to do more hard things. As you right. can see, if you don't learn how to do hard things, this is not going to be, this is going to be, we believe in our minds that it's going to be destructive if we mm -hmm. release these thoughts, if yeah. we stand up for ourselves, if we have these opinions. When in reality, you, you are a ticking time bomb. You are self-destructing every minute. You don't have these uncomfortable, hard conversations. Yeah, and maybe this can track back to performance psychology. It certainly can for me because, um, you know, I see the parallel 
between, you know, mental obesity and physical obesity strongly. I think Alexander Cortez is the, the first person who wrote, literally wrote mental obesity, but I've, I've yeah, thought we should of get con- on a podcast. We should. Um, but I've thought of the concept for, for years. It's like, you can totally see that the people who are, who are good gym performers have minds that are constructed a certain way. And there's certain commonalities that they have with hard workers that, that, you know, and there's certain commonalities that people who can't think and people can't lift share a lot of a lot in common in certain ways because they shy away from acute pain. And so the common, the, the, the common link between lifting and growing your body physically and growing your mind mentally is you will go through acute pain in order to do it. And so your desire to improve must exceed the acute pain that you feel. Otherwise you will stop incurring this acute pain that's the necessary stimulus for your growth. And so people get that with training. It's like obvious to them. I need to lift this weight if I want to get stronger. It should be obvious. Some people will try shortcuts, blah, blah, blah. But like generally, do you want to get stronger? You need to lift heavier weights in some capacity. You know, don't try to be a show pony and just do stuff like you, you know. Fake you can do that too, right? And the same thing's true intellectually, right? You can, you can actually learn things, but actually learn things is, learning things is hard because it requires you to discard things that you've held to be true, but, but have subsequently found out are not true. And so for me, learning is, it's basically scaffolding. It's like, I have a new idea. I can base my ideas off of this idea, but then it becomes invalidated by, by new information. As I learn new information, I have to be comfortable discarding my scaffolding. If I cannot discard the scaffolding that got me to the point where I was, I cannot put the stimulus on my mind that, that is required for me to get to that next level. It's like, if I, it's like, if I, I only do a certain thing, I can get to a 450 deadlift, but if I want to get to a 500 deadlift, I have to stop doing the thing that got me to 450 to get to 500. And maybe I have to stop doing the thing that got me to 550 to get to 600 if I wanted to get that far. And so, the, and the, the, the goal and idea though has to be strong enough to worth suffering for, right? And I think that's the problem. Everything's worth, everything that we do is we're going to suffer one way or the other. We can't, we can look back at history, which is just our personal histories mm-hmm. and realize that adversity and suffering is just a part of life. But what you just said though, the goal to deadlift 500 was worth suffering for, for you, at mm-hmm. least for this particular time, right? But sure. if, you're, if the goal wasn't strong enough to suffer for, that's when we crumble. Well, and and then the thing is, most people don't have very much experience with acute pain. And so the thing that I think I benefit from just from having trained for the last 15 years is I know, like, look, my workouts are hard. Most people, if they try to put themselves through my workouts, even though the volume is substantially lower, they can't match the, the peak pinnacles that I have. I have a lot of rest periods in between my sets generally, and I have a lot of days in between my lifts. But when I'm going, the, the amount of pain I can endure for the particular set that I'm going through is very, very high, but it's very, very high because I have experience knowing what the pain curve feels like. I know I'm doing this set for four repetitions. I know that I can get the first repetition. I know that I can get the second repetition. I know the third repetition is going to be challenging. And so I know that I need to play. I need to basically numb myself to the pain of repetition three. And then I need to super numb myself to the rep to the pain of repetition four. And and what people don't realize, they don't realize that there's a map to this pain curve. They just see pain. They see it as the same thing. They see it as like someone shooting them like a bullet, a bullet to, to the, to the bicep or something like that. But for me, when I've gone through these pain curves over and over and over again, I realize that this training session isn't, you know, the, the hardest thing in the world. This part's hard. This part's hard. This part's hard. Mm -hmm. This part's really hard. 
And then these other parts are not that hard. And I just, I need to mentally map, okay, brace for this, brace for this, focus for this, brace for that. And it's actually a lot easier than simply, you know, kind of like um, lying in my own fears and letting my fears, um, you know, uh, augment how painful I think this experience is going to be to the point where I won't even put myself through it. And I think most people are at that step where their, their mind is augmenting the amount of pain that a new environment, whether it's a new training environment, a new conversation, a new, a new way of socially engaging with people. It's an anxiety. It's, it's, it's literally exactly. an anxiety. It's an anxiety. Exactly. It's thinking about something actually before it happens. See, your and I's mindsets are very similar there. I know that there's going to be points in my workout that are going to be more intense or harder than the others. What worked for me, though, was a story that I got from my mentor, Joel Kerr, which we were supposed to talk about today, too. So Joel spent, um, I'd say, six, seven years of his adult life in prison. When Joel got out of prison for the first time that I'd met him, he became my training mentor. And I remember we were training and we had some pretty intense training sessions, as you could imagine. He's at a very hardcore, raw mindset. And we were pushing the sled run day. And we were, we, the cops got called on Joel for pushing the sled because they said it was child abuse. Because every day we pushed the sled, we'd puke. We'd push the sled. And I'm not saying that this is the best, most beneficial way to get a training session. But I will tell you this. There was nobody in the fucking town or in my mindset right now, he was more mentally tough than me because of those grueling, hard, intense training sessions. And I remember looking to Joel and I said to him one day, I'm 16, 17. I was just like, dude, it hurts. I mean, I said, Joel, it hurts. My lungs are like they've never heard them on die. He looked at me dead in my eyes. He said, it's supposed to hurt, motherfucker. Yeah. And it changed everything for me. I yeah. began to then realize that suffering is inevitable. This right. life is supposed to hurt. I talked about adversity just the other day. Adversity, we are supposed to deal with struggle. Just the, the, the idea of not dealing with struggle is struggling in itself. It will certainly incur struggling, yeah. Yes, we, yeah. we have to accept struggle. We have to accept hardships and we accept struggle and we accept hardships. It makes them easier to go through. You become wiser through these circumstances if you change your perspective. Right. Changing your mindset will make it easier to go through them. Changing your perspective will give you wisdom through them. Life is coaching you through these adversities. Everything we've gone through that required hardship or this whole podcast is based off of your baseball experiences and my experiences, all based off times that we've had to overcome some sort of hardship. Right. And I think if you, if you think about the capacity that people have to endure additional pain, it's probably similar to the capacity they have to endure not getting paid for a couple of weeks. Right. So I think most Americans are on very low reserves in all aspects of their life. They have very minimal savings and they have very, very minimal emotional savings. Right. And emotional savings isn't something that I've even talked about at any great length or even necessarily thought through in this lens until right now. But emotional savings is essentially how much pain can you outlay for how long, right? Can you try at hundred percent for 36 days? Can you try at 50% for 360 days? Like what can you try for what period of time? And the, the reality is if you want to grow, you do need to make an emotional pain investment right now. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you need to be, be at 100% pain capacity for the rest of your life. That's not what that means. Um, it, but it might mean you're at 20% pain for most days, for your whole life. And some days it bumps up to 50% and some days it bumps up to hundred percent. But most people don't understand that the amount of pain that they can tolerate will ebb and flow. And they're not putting themselves in a position to maximally tolerate the amount of 
pain that will allow them to uh, get the results that they want. They're, they're essentially pain averse because they have no pain, they have no pain, emotional pain savings. And if you're that pain averse, good, sorry. If you're pain averse, you're going to end up following demagogues who make everything feel good for you because you, you, if you lack the capacity to incur any degree of modification to how you're feeling, you'll always follow someone who's full of shit because pain, pain is only- a must, right? Yeah, right. You're but pain is a muscle, right? You, you yeah. have to work it. Yeah. You know, you're able to deal with more pain during your training sessions now than what you could three years ago. Yeah. The reason because you've become accustomed, you've adjusted to the pain. Mm -hmm. And also there's times in your life when your pain tolerance comes high, where you go eight weeks without a paycheck, you got to heat the house with the kitchen stove, whatever these situations and circumstances that in my life where I felt these peak pains, these emotional, uh, tidal waves and roller coasters. When I'm at the peak, it's kind of set the tone for me for the rest of my life to realize these peak performances of pain and also recognizing that I can handle more pain. An yes. easy way to understand, like I can handle about any pain. I was the other day, I was praying and I was talking to a friend of mine. I was explaining to him that, you know, I got to make some hard decisions soon with my business and what I'm going to decide to do. Thankfully, I'm in a position with my business where we're not suffering. We can kind of get through this pandemic for about as long as it lasts. But eventually my values are going to kick in. I'm like, hey, something's going to change. and I'm going to figure this out. When that time comes, I'm naturally going to deal with a lot of repercussions and everything else that comes along with it. But my ability to handle pain and times of adversity has continually e increased over the years because I've dealt with adversity over the years. I've been in pain. I've yeah. been having adversity, hard circumstances, situations. I've adapted myself to be callous to pain. Right. While I am calluses. callous to pain. That, you got calluses. Calluses yes, on your fingers, get, calluses on your mind. Yeah. That can get me through it. I can be tough. I can tough any fucking thing out. I can be homeless right. for a month. I can tough about anything else because I've done it. But... It gives it a lot more meaning and there's not more, a lot more reason to go through pain when you have the perspective that you're gaining from it, that you're right. learning from it, right. that you're being taken through it for a particular purpose and reasoning right. that's going to play into your psychology and your development as you begin to progress yourself through life. I can talk to emotionally weak people and I just look at them like, you ain't been through much. Right. That, that's usually what it comes down to. People who are emotionally weak, they've either been through so much and they never had the perspective of seeing it as a, as a, as a value to their life. Right, right, right. Or it's because these people never learned how to deal with the adversity that they face. Right. They, or they never felt any adversity. Never right. Felt and it, it. it's similar to people who, who don't have good results in training. You don't have good results in training either because you have no proper stimulus or you tried to overstimulate yourself and it didn't work. And, and, you know, this is really interesting where you're talking about, you know, heating, heating your, your kitchen with a, you know, with an oven where, you know, I'm sure if this isn't true, it's similar to something that is in your life. Can you talk through the mindset that you have where you're going through a situation like this, where you're wondering, when is it going to end? When is it going to end? Certainly you're playing mind games with yourself, especially if it's cold in that situation. Um, you're playing mind games with yourself. And what people might not realize if they haven't gone through situations like this is you play mind games to minimize the pain that you feel you, and you shift your perspective to minimize the amount of pain that you feel. And going through this, this, these things, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times makes you real, makes you tune your ability to shift your perspective to such a way that you can actually endure more pain because you realize if I think about it like this, rather than that, it doesn't hurt as bad. I go through the same experience, but it doesn't hurt as bad. And if I'm focused on this instead of that, I can get through it. And then you realize that it's transferable and you not only can it let you get through this tough life event, you know, when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, but it's also applicable to a competition 
because I can take mm -hmm. that same mental framework that I used to tolerate pain here and apply it in this, this other aspect of my life where I can voluntarily to tolerate more pain so I can achieve something new. A lot of this has to go down to speaking on that is how you perceive yourself. See, my identity wasn't wrapped up in being poor. My identity obviously isn't wrapped up in cutting my sweatshirts but I cut my sweatshirts all the time because when I was 12, 13 years old, we didn't have money for new clothes. So I'd have to cut my clothes in order for them to fit the following year. But my identity wasn't wrapped up in my hoodie. My identity was wrapped up in who I am as a person. So when I was heating my house with the kitchen stove or whatever it was, it wasn't like I thought that I even had it worse than anybody else. I was aware enough to know when I go to friends' houses, they didn't, they didn't have to do the same things I had to do to survive. But it always, for me, from a young age, and I, this is why I say I know I am special in some regards to the mom I had, my mom always flipped our circumstances as a, as a teaching moment, as a lesson. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's why I do it so much, is when I was with my friends and I saw that, you know, my hoodie's cut and they're talking, about, oh, I want a pair of Jordans, they want this. I viewed it as a weakness that they need other things to fulfill them where I never needed that. I never needed the fulfillment from a new pair of shoes or that the heater to be working. I remember one time I was very embarrassed. A friend came over and our electric was out and the electric got shut off that day that literally my friend was there. So he had to take a bath, a shower or whatever with oh, a no. candlelight at our house. You want to talk oh, about it was like cold too. Yes. <laughs> well, it was summertime at that okay. time though. It was summertime. And that's why the electric got shut off. And that's why the electric didn't get shut off in the wintertime because they shut the, you know, the, uh, the gas off, but the electric still works. I see. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So anyways, you know, I was embarrassed at that time, but I also realized that, you know, in those particular moments that this is not going to be my life forever. These are the mm -hmm. circumstances that I'm going through. And my mom always talked about seasons. And when the seasons would change, you know, there's seasons of life and there, there will be times of life when it is dark and it's hard and it feels like the winter. And there'll be seasons of life that are that you're growing and you're learning mm -hmm. and you know there'll be seasons of like the fall that's beautiful to see and that you're content in those seasons so i started kind of kind of molding and viewing my life based around seasons like there are seasons that since mm -hmm. i have become successful if you will or wealthy like I, i've been quote unquote wealthy for a long time i've been making six figures year after year for a really long time really until i got a muscle farm three years in the coal mine you know I make 35 plus dollars an hour you're fucking crushing it mm -hmm. always worked over time always did really financially well took a big dip uh the first year i got here from indianapolis uh, so i worked in for a shitty company and uh, fire me a month before Christmas. And so I didn't make much money that year and the year after the gym was just started. But since then, you know, we've been financially, I've been fi financially blessed, if you will, for mm -hmm. year after year after year. But it doesn't mean I haven't gone through hard seasons and hardships right. and adversity. You know, a lot of my battles is not always financial. I, I've dealt with those a lot in the past, but they weren't nearly as hard as the battle that was going on between my ears. The battle that was going on between my ears, stuff that social media hardly ever sees because I'm, I'm a positive face on social media. But I do try to talk a lot about adversity and hardship and, and circumstances and bad situations because I've, I've gone through them and know that I continually go through hardships and hard seasons. And I continue to plan to go through these hardships and these hard seasons for the duration and remainder of my life because I know that it's, it's, it's not, not just important, but it's absolutely necessary for me to go through hardships to develop my, my, my psychology to understanding things and gaining perspective and true viewpoints of the world. See, I'm seeing a lot of people right now that the coronavirus is hitting them a lot harder than other people's. And I'm mm -hmm. praying for everybody because my adversity might not seem much to you and vice versa, right? right? There's a lot of people I see on social media right now who are just completely up in arms and just losing their shit based off of their current circumstances and situation with the coronavirus right now because it's the highest point of pain in discomfort that they have ever felt. Mm -hmm. And I feel for them there because I don't feel that same pain 
in discomfort for the fact being that I feel like I've been taken care of and this is not my battle. You know, there are certain things that I do in life and it's my battle. It's my cross to bear. It's my stress that it's mine to bear. The coronavirus is not mine to bear. All I can do is control my environment, my perspectives, and my reactions. Mm -hmm. So when I control my environment, I, I control that through my perspectives and I control that through my reactions. Mm -hmm. So if I have practical, positive perspectives, I can have practical and positive reactions. Mm -hmm. See, how we, we continually react in times of pressure and circumstances is how our character is being defined. The best thing you can be in times of struggle is a calming presence. Yeah. And, and so, you know, maybe let's, let's map this to a real world situation where, you know, earlier in the year you took, uh, you took your team to uh, New York's uh, strongest man. You won personally, your team did very well. Um, but you also tweeted, you know, leading up to the event that, you know, negative thoughts start to come into your mind. You know, can, can your body endure what it used to be able to after injuring your shoulder and, and injuring your back? You know, people are telling you, I'm sure they're, they're, they're hammering you for your training style. They're telling you you're going to get hurt and you're telling them, no, I'm strong, strong bodies don't break. But you know, you're saying that in part to believe, to, to convince yourself that I'm sure. Right. Because a lot of times when people argue, they're, they're reinforcing thoughts that they want to believe themselves. You're 100%. You know, I'm the first person to say this shit can break me in half. It's broke me in half too many times. Exactly. Like it's not, mm -hmm. I've never, I never attempt to lift thinking it's going to break me. Never once have I crawled under 720 like this is the day I slip a disc. Right. Never once. Right. That's never, never the thought when you get under the bar. Is it thoughts before you get under the bar? Absolutely. So how do you flip it? How do you like for the listening audience? What, how long are you, you know, you know, for the, for the 72 so that, hours? No, that's great. That's, yeah, that's great. So here's what it is for me. It all changed me for a long time ago when I learned to start capitalizing on fear and anxiety. And what that meant for me. Am I, do I have anxiety? I don't really think. I don't care about much stuff, really, or people's opinions very much of me. So I feel like my anxiety as far as what other people uh, claim that they have is way, way, way down. Right? But mm -hmm. I do have anxious thoughts, right? And, but when I find myself in these moments of before competition or whatever it is, it's usually about three days before or four days, maybe a week before, maybe it starts to kick in. Doubt. Is my training session was, was, was did I do good enough? You know, this training cycle, mm -hmm. I, I, I can think specific days last Thursday, I fucking skipped out on two sets of tricep work, fucking at done planks. I, I, I ate that Reese cup. You know, I, I'm literally, I can check off all the negative reasons why I'm not going to be able to perform the way I'm going to be able to perform. Mm -hmm. A lot of people see this. And at one time in my life, it began to feel as if that's the thoughts I started listening to. And then there came this switch. And I don't know if it was around the same time I started boxing or maybe the, because I started boxing right after all my parents' adversity and drug addiction. So it might've been around that time of that pinnacle of stress mm -hmm. or whatever that looked like. I began to utilize that fear, you know, that fear of like, this is the weight that's going to break me. Mm -hmm. I fucking allow myself to feel all of it. I allow myself to get fucking afraid, petrified mm -hmm. of the next attempt of the weight. So before I'm going in my lift, I'm pacing. You see me, I'm very calm and relaxed. About two minutes before I start or a minute before I start, I begin to pace a little bit. It's not fast and angry. It's just a pace because I'm anxious and I'm afraid of what's about to happen to me. The minute I grab a hold of that bar, every fucking thing changes. 
I am unbeatable. There's fucking nobody in my sphere, in my universe that can stop me from accomplishing what I'm about to accomplish. The fear of that bar breaking me is fucking lit a fire under my ass so much that it will not break me. It cannot break me. There's this mental switch that happens to me of what may happen to flips to all that fear and anxiety goes into what will happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a minute before. And is like that something when I get closer to the confidence, I'm feeling confident. Like I know I got my shit together. I fucking know I worked hard and stuff, but I, I, I still allow those negative thoughts to take up real estate in my mind. So I can then utilize them. That that fear you ever realize when you get super afraid. I mean, there's, there's been too many cases of people lifting 2000 pound boulders off of people, but they yeah. break every bone in their body. Right? right. All they've done is tapped into a, a new piece of adrenaline that, that is already existing within their body. Right. Because it happens and it's right. happened too many times to say it hasn't happened. We right. all have it, but we have right. to learn how to tap into that point of adrenaline, uh, whether it's that cognitive function, what mm-hmm. that seems like. The reason I'm so strong, if you want to call me that, you know, in that perspective, I, I don't like to say I'm strong because that limits me from actually being strong in my mm-hmm. opinion. Right. But if you want to call me strong, I'm, I'm, I got willpower. My yeah. homies never thought I was like, dude, homo's cock strong. I know dude's tough. You got mental toughness. Right. Right. Is that kid we the fucking junior bacon cheeseburger and fast and being a coal mine 12 hours and come out and fucking pull 550 for reps? Mm-hmm. That's just always the, I was never a victim to my circumstances. Right. And I feel like that has a lot to do too with, with also with my success and how I handle fear because I've never been a victim to my thought process. Right. And so that that's one of a couple of ways people can, can do it is if you have an emotion that, that you're feeling you basically, you either need to harness it or figure out a way to, to get it out of your system. Right. And so my experience is a little bit different than Zach's because I've done both strength and speed, speed competitions. Um, but then I've also played baseball. And so for the, the commonality between the two is I needed to make myself think that I was the greatest competitor ever, um, on both. Right. Where even though it's obviously not true, like obviously I was not best baseball player in the sec obviously i was not best professional baseball player obviously i'm not the strongest person in the gym when i'm lifting an iron valley barbell like i'm it's obviously not true but if i have that objective reality in my mind in the moment in the midst of competition i will not compete as well but there's a duality to it because a lot of the people who are who might have that belief in themselves in the moment of competition might not have the wherewithal to prepare properly leading up to it and so I think what, what you end up seeing with elite competitors is they're, they're able to properly harness their self-doubt, right? And so they have this, this optimal mix of understanding and targeting their weaknesses through the training phase and, and focusing on targeting their, their objectively identified weaknesses through the training phase. But then when they get to the competition phase, their mindset switches from being focused on the, you know, the weakness development to focus on weakness ignorance. Like I'm ignorant to anything that, that makes me non-perfect right now because I'm competing. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting. I do a lot of that too. Actually, my guys, you'll hear it about two or three weeks out from competition. I, I really start talking. I mean, I posted a video the other day uh, just with my training partners and I deadlifted 585 because he said I couldn't do it on a sprayed ankle when I said I could. So he challenged me. And you hear me saying, fuck you, Dylan. Fuck I saw you, that video. Yeah. It's very constant. It's, and it's also before competitions. Like, I'm competing often with guys who I'm very good friends with. Like, yeah. They're my buddies, but right. leading up to competition, fuck all these motherfuckers. They ain't yeah. suffered the way I suffered. They right. ain't worked the way I worked. They ain't going to fucking take this from me. Fuck all you mother. It's fucking yeah. war. That fucking right. one minute that I'm out there and I'm going against the iron, 
fuck you motherfuckers. I don't give a right. fuck about you or fucking anything about that's the mindset. And I'm, then I get done. I'm like, dude, and you can see it in my video. I'm like, I love you guys. You know, it's like, I'm back to my regular personality. Right. But right, in that right. moment, I'm fucking unstoppable. I am the quote unquote alpha. I'm the fucking right. greatest. Nobody can touch me. I'm impeccable. Right. You have right. to think that way because no one else is going to fucking think about it for you. But you know right. what? That mindset is attracting. See, you know, yeah. uh, social media will call it toxic masculinity because they're a bunch of fucking idiots. But that's mm-hmm. not true. That's not true at all. All people must achieve great things by believing they are great. You will achieve nothing great by believing that you are less than. Mm-hmm. You must believe you are great to achieve great things. Even right. the greatest in the world, the, all of them, they have once had fear, but they also believe that they're capable of achieving it. Even if they hint, c- come as humble and they humiliate themselves, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They still, in their mind, believe that there's greatness within them. That's why they're great. Right. And I think, so this is absolutely necessary to be great. I think almost everybody who's actually achieved greatness has, has believed that they could in order to make the investment that was necessary to achieve great greatness. Uh, that can also manifest itself in, a, in a, a negative way where you talk about toxic masculinity, which I would agree is misarticulated online. That being said, there, there very clearly are examples of uh, of people who would respond poorly uh, to a situation like that. And, you know, take, for example, the people who um, might believe that they're the best, but then they lose, right? Because that happens too. Only one person can win an event, right? Everybody else is going to lose an event. And so if you're not the person who wins, how do you respond to not winning? Because if you wanted to win just as bad as the guy who won, but you lost, all of a sudden you have a dopamine shortage, Right, and you have a degree of pain that that convinces you of of inferiority. And so, what mm-hmm. most people are going to do in that situation is they're either going to reassess the framework that led them to not win, or they're going to find and latch onto an excuse for why that they couldn't get a certain a certain thing. And so, I think you you, you see a, a range of reactions from uh, ingesting reality and properly. Uh, properly adjusting my approach to it, to ignoring reality and finding an excuse. And then the third layer is like the most toxic element of ignoring reality, finding an excuse, and then taking it out on people who had nothing to do with it. Right. And so there's several, there's several layers that are just basically cousins of the same thought um, that can manifest themselves if you don't actually go down that proper path. Yeah. And the idea of failure is very culturally influenced as well. And I believe a lot of the reasons behind why we are so afraid of failure is, is okay, there's two different pushes. I'm going to talk about this one in particular first is the push on uh, of how you will be perceived by, by culture, perceived mm-hmm. by your peers, right? So that causes a negative reaction when you do fail, right? Self, negative self-talk, whatever that mm-hmm. might look like. But it kind of goes full circle to that perspective I talk about. See, even when I'm, when I'm in competitions and I lose competitions and whatever that might look like, I've never been uh, upset, hung my head, a sore loser in any competition that I've ever been in. And I don't know if this is just, again, another gift that I had or what that looks like for me, but it's always just been another learning moment for me. Uh, I'm totally fine with going 0 and 50 and then making a uh, 10 game run and winning the Super Bowl. That's yeah. totally fine with me, what, what, right. whatever it takes, because I know that I had in order, like my circumstances and situations, I had to go 0 and 50 before I went 10 and 0 and won the Super Bowl. So that was just my particular circumstance situations that I had to need to go through. When I start viewing failure always as losses, like I'm, I, if I start viewing failure as I am a failure, right. that's when failure becomes toxic. Right. And I think if I'm going to, I'm going to draw that into a, 
um, a destination mindset versus a journey mindset, because the most successful people are on a journey. They're not, uh, you know, they have destination type goals, but they realize that the process that they go through from when they wake up in the morning to when they go to bed at night is really what's going to carry them um, to constantly live in approximately the destination that they want to be in, or at least move in that direction. And so for people who are destination or journey, or excuse me, for people who are journey focused, they can lose, 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 and still keep the perspective that this is part of a longer story. But for people who are destination focused, number one, they expect success to happen faster because their, their understanding of the world is more, um, is less granular, it's less specified. And so they actually map people into successful failure, successful failure, winner, loser, winner, loser. They don't realize that the things that you do every day contribute to whether you're a winner or a loser. They think that these are fixed categories. And when they're fixed categories, then you latch on to defending the rigidity of these fixed categories. I didn't lose because this thing happened, you know, this happened to me. I'm the best because of that. It's like, well, okay, that's fine that you can articulate that, but what is that point of view doing and what sort of ongoing um, work is that mindset leading you to do? Oh, nothing. Okay. So that's why you're not advancing in life is because you're looking at it from a fixed standpoint, constantly trying to defend your worth rather than constantly trying to build your worth. Man, it, it, we keep going back to this and I feel like this is a word that we'll probably end up using all of our episodes perspective that again, goes down to perspective. I think I talk about perspective so much is because we are the bell curve because we are literally one thought, one change of thought away from changing everything. And mm-hmm. it's like, a, it's a domino effect, right? Whenever you change one thought to seeing, well, I did this, this happened because of this and you push blame, you immediately shut your mind off from thinking or producing any thoughts that could have added value into your next competition right. or into your next job interview, whatever it might've looked like. Right. If you change your perspective and you begin to see your losses and your failures as opportunities in your journey to learn more and to get you towards that in-depth destination, that's when you're going to find yourself progressing more and also finding a lot more fulfillment in your journey to your destination. You know, right. another thing to think about is there's a lot of people on here that young entrepreneurs and um, with that particular mindset, whatever it might look like, a uh, corporate ladder, it doesn't matter what, 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 what field you're in where you find yourself working for freedom. You find yourself living your life because I want to be able to have freedom one day. I want financial freedom. And that's kind of like the new thing that everybody talks about right now is having freedom. But what's funny is that the same people who talk about having freedom, they'll post their schedules and stuff and they're dictated by their schedule. If you want freedom, you have to start making that a metric of your success. See, freedom's a big deal to me. I would love to make a million dollars a year and I probably will in my lifetime make a million dollars a year. But right now, what's more important to me than making a million dollars a year or making that extra 5K a month or 7K or 50, whatever it might look like, is the fact that having freedom right. of my schedule is one of my highest metrics of success. Right. I may have been a millionaire right now right. if I would have not had that as a metric of my success. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you are saying that you want freedom, but you're not actually living out the lifestyle that's going to provide you freedom. Now, the double-edged sword, you must have discipline. You must have a schedule in order to produce yourself freedom, in order to even become financially free. I 100% believe in that as well. But if you're living and working for a set schedule day after day after day in result, and in 10 years, you're going to have X freedom, 
you're not going to have X freedom in 10 years. You will always stay within that same cycle year after year after year. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting. Uh, you talk about your perspective, right? Because, um, everybody says perspective, right? Not everybody says positioning. And so I, because of my background in, you know, just understanding psychology, understanding my own psychology, the psychology, the psychology of the people I played with and psychology of the people that I work with, um, I'm able to map the similarities between training and between growing yourself mentally. And one thing that really impressed me about Zach, which I've said previously, and I'll continue to, is his understanding of positioning through lifting is like the best of anybody I've ever heard speak. And so he understands that, okay, so you're attempting to do this movement this way because you, because you're moving your hips in this manner, because you're moving your foot in this, in this capacity, that's going to cause your weight to be shifted here, which is going to cause you to try to generate power here, which is going to put you in a position to be injured there. And it's also going to limit your growth. So why don't you try to position yourself this way? People see Zach doing physical positioning and it's very obvious to them. Wow. My deadlift I'm repping the thing that I maxed at when I met Zach an hour ago, right? That's amazing. I'm, I made essentially the progress that I would make in nine months, I made in 90 minutes, right? By adjusting my positioning. The same thing's true with mental positioning is you can, you can understand and break down the complexities of an issue in a million different ways. Most of those ways are suboptimal. Just like there's a million ways you can pick something up off the ground, almost every way is suboptimal. If you really, really want to optimize your efficiency in picking something up off the ground, you need to understand your weaknesses. You need to understand your propensity to overcompensate for those weaknesses. And you need to understand your proper positioning to get yourself in to take advantage of your strongest points. The same thing's true with your mentality, right? You understand, if, if you understand yourself well, just like if you understand yourself as a lifter well, you understand what your weaknesses are. You understand the trigger points that activate the weaknesses. You understand how to properly engage your strengths. You understand how to um, how to develop your weaknesses while still harnessing your strengths. Um, you understand how there are many different ways you can approach this, this issue. There's only one optimal way, or there's only a mm. few different ways that can be justifiably optimal and you need to follow those. And if you don't follow those, then you're going to put yourself in a position to become mentally injured, which is going to, which is going to do the same thing as a physical injury does for your growth. It's going to put you on the sidelines for several months and probably set you back. Right. And so if you, want, if you want to get better in life, if you want to get better in lifting, you need to improve your, your physical positioning. If you want to get better at, at embracing struggle, if you want to get better at, at, um, at tolerating the acute pain that's necessary for growth, you need to work on adjusting your mental positioning. Let's talk. I love that, Alex. Let's talk. You said something there that really uh, sparked a lot of uh, thoughts for me. You said, uh, you talked about positioning and then you also discussed a little bit about working and developing your weaknesses, but also aiding to your strengths. You, you hear this a lot in, in the entrepreneurial world, fuck your weaknesses, go all in on your strengths. Okay. That that's cool. And I'm actually kind of for that. You don't see me trying to teach history or I actually, I'm good at history. You don't see me trying to teach English or math, right? Really anything at school because it's not that great at anything. Right? I'm, I'm kind of conspiracy thought too. So half of my history is probably not even right. <laughs> Moon landing. <laughs> but, but anyways, but uh, kind of continuing on that for a second, right? I do position myself very effectively in life with my mindset. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm positioned in life with where I believe my strong suits are, I still have weaknesses within mm -hmm. my strong suit. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And those are the weaknesses that I try to develop out. See, I'm not actually trying to get all that much better at math. I've actually learned how to be pretty successful with the amount of math that I've had. I still get a couple hundred retweets off some bullshit that I said they're wrong and I didn't spell four words or use two words out of context, still managed to get me quite a few likes and drove a lot of profits into my PayPal account. Mm-hmm. So I don't spend a lot of time either on developing my English, mm-hmm. but I do spend a lot of time on developing my mindset. Mm -hmm. learning new perspectives, observing people, things that I find can be weaknesses of me, self-reflection, finding my blind spots. Uh, Something that's really big for me is going to counseling. Um, I want to be, you know, the whole thing, how to win friends and influence people. Great book, Andrew Carnegie, I believe. That's great. Dale Carnegie. He's not the guy who owned U.S. Steel. He's a different, different Carnegie. Dale Carnegie. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways. uh, You don't need to know who wrote it to get the lessons from it though. Right. So Dale Carnegie, though, that's the one who owned the steel mills, right? No, no. Andrew Carnegie owned the steel mills. Dale Carnegie okay. wrote the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I always get that fucked up for the fact being that I actually grew up outside of Pittsburgh and I worked on a couple of Andrew Carnegie's like houses that were actually turned into schools because he donated yeah. them or whatever. So anyways, that, that, that's outside the point. What was I talking about? Oh, weaknesses and where to spend, where to, where, to, where to focus your efforts and time. So I will focus my effort and time on specific things that are weak inside of my particular strengths that I'm trying to pursue based off of my end goal or destination, if you will, but still seeing it as a, you know, obviously opportunity of growth. So I find myself utilizing um, my weaknesses and developing my weaknesses only if they fit my, my end goal. Like for instance, a particular weakness that I work on on a consistent basis, I'm very fiery. You can just hear me in my voice when I'm talking on the podcast. When I get super excited about something, I'm like, I say it loud, I say it firm, and, I, and that's just kind of my personality. It's something I'm meeting. Pro wrestler, pro wrestler yeah. style communication. And, I, and I'm very, like, I'm very animated, bro. I love to use my hands and I like yeah. to get people involved. Like, I'm supposed to be on a stage, and that's something that I, I do know. Like, I'm supposed to entertain people if in some manner. I'm supposed to teach them, I'm supposed to lead. And it's where I'm supposed to be. But within that, I also can find myself becoming self-righteous. I can find yeah. myself thinking that, I, and I talk to this about my guys, and the, the core group of guys are super close to me. And this is an insecurity that I have because it's a weakness that I have, and I want to kind of talk about on the podcast. And you guys, uh, I, I found myself in a point of leadership my entire life. Uh, I feel like because my parents' hardship, you know, I've always, I feel called a natural leader. I always yeah. created the games in the playgrounds. I always was the, the, the friend taking us on the hikes through the woods. We're like, hey, let's go sneak out and camp tonight. I was always orchestrating shit. I was always the leader of the, the ring shit, leader. Right? That, yeah, I, I was the ring leader of all the misfits. And here I am in Iron Valley Barbell doing the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> but I find myself, though, being a little bit too self-righteous, thinking that just because I, like, I can have stories that you hear me all the time sharing stories. So my friends, I, I caught myself doing this a couple years ago. Uh, and I caught it with actually my buddy Dylan. He was telling a story. And then he got done with the storytelling and I told a very similar story of friends that I had, you know, a situation I had with my friends and it was very similar to what they, what he was talking about. And then I feel like the whole shift though, the whole focus and the energy went towards what I had to say as if my thought process was superior or my story, right. my, 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 my story was more superior to his. And I'm like, I, I acknowledged it for the first time that day. And I'm like, I do that a lot. I don't yeah. do it intentionally to try to put people down or to like one up people. Cause I think one uppers are like, they're like, yeah, I knocked a guy out. I want to be like, yeah, I knocked three guys out. Like I'm not necessarily, it's not that way, but it is, I do have to understand that just because of my personality and how I portray myself and how animated I am and the words that I use and the experiences that I have, people listen to me. And yeah. the fact that people listen to me, I can take advantage of that in a negative way 
by over talking and overstepping my boundaries in communications, whether it's my friends here on the podcast or wherever yeah. it is. So it's something that I've tried to just say, Hey, that's a weakness actually. And that can actually be very turn offish. That can wreck and ruin the closest relationships to me, not directly, but subdirectly because it's yeah. not a, something that I wanted to focus on for myself. Well, and so, I think, it, and I think a good I leader from the cut you off. I think a good leader, you know, I, I played um, baseball at Vanderbilt and the coach uh, Tim Corbin has been there since uh, 2003. So he's been like 18 years now. Um, and he really turned the program around, um, from one that never made the SEC tournament to one that consistently makes the SEC tournament, sometimes wins the SEC, uh, is technically defending, uh, national champions because there's not going to be an NCAA championship this year. So through next year, they will be, uh, the, the defending 2019 national champions. Um, but what people don't realize who aren't sports fans necessarily is that this person is not just a coach. He's a very good leader. And so one concept that I picked up when I was like 20, 21 years old playing for the guy was saving his voice. As a leader, he understood that the ability that he had to be listened to by other people within his organization was finite. And so he couldn't be the person who was constantly talking because if he talked all the time, nobody would listen to anything he said. Of course, if he never talked, then he would never be able to communicate his message. And so for him, he was always trying to, to find the optimum point for how much voice he should share with his team directly. And then if he had a really important point to share, he would try to do it through a vessel, through somebody else on the team, a different leader, a different, um, you know, you could call it a middle manager, but it would just be like a senior on the team or a junior on the team, an upperclassman. You could pass that message down to the team on his behalf so the team wouldn't become um, bored or sick of listening to him when he really had something to say. And so mm -hmm. I think when people are learning about leadership and learning about leadership development, you know, they're typically going to, going to hear that they need to harness these skills of alpha. And then on the flip side, they're going to, they're going to hear the exact opposite where they're going to need to encourage uh, communication, encourage contribution from everybody in the organization. And the reality that you, the, the reason why you have such a differentiated perspective is both are necessary to, in order to be an effective leader, you both need to maximize the contribution of other people within your organization, which requires that you let them talk and sometimes talk alone. But then sometimes it requires if you have something that really needs to be shared because your perspective is in fact superior in certain ways to others, you need to share it. And you need to make that's sure that's very people interesting about how your coach does it. That's, that's actually very similar to how I run Iron Valley Barbell. And the yeah. guys crack up about it actually all the time. What people come in the gym who don't know that I'm the owner for the first, unless they follow us on social media, but they might not know I'm an owner to a couple months in. I remember this conversation I had this one guy. He goes, wait, are you the owner here? Because everyone usually thinks Jeremy is because I have Jeremy kind of be that voice. I see. It, yeah, so Jeremy is Jeremy's basically, to the members of Iron Valley Barbell, more of a face the Iron Valley Barbell than actually what I am. Not because of my lack of being there, being in the environment, rather so that I know that I'm still viewed in like, it's my gym, right? It's mine, if you will. So I have a very hardcore, if you want to call it that, or just basically I call real gym environment where we allow the weights to slam and shirts off. But people are used to going to different gyms around the community that if you take your shirt off, you get in trouble. That if you slam weights, you get in trouble. So when I come into the gym, I found that if people recognize that I was the owner and they were new and I do have a very loud and, you know, pushy kind of personality that they might change or right. not act the same way that they would act as if they didn't know. So this kid goes, wait a second, are, are you the owner here? So I said, you know what, man, I'm here so much. People start to think that. I won't even give people a straight answer if I'm the owner or not for the simple fact being that I don't want them to change how they act within my environment just because right. the owner is there. But it's interesting you said that because that's how we run our barbell. And I feel like that has a lot to do with our culture at IVB. If I'm right. dabbing people up, 
spotting people, encouraging people, slamming weights myself. And then four, four days later, that guy realized that's the owner. The respect that they, they have for me just increases dramatically by yeah. me having to walk around and demand orders. You know, you go to IVP, you go to any other gym in the world, basically, and they have rules. There's yeah. not one rule. I have no rules at Iron Blade Bubble. It's a code. I have codes. The code is be respectful. If you're not respectful to the equipment, which which it's pretty hard for me to view someone to be disrespectful. I mean, you literally got to try to break it on purpose, right? As long as you're respectful to the equipment, to the people, you're more than welcome to train here 24-7 forever. And it doesn't matter to me. Uh, yeah. and, and, and by not having those rules and being a rule-based leader, if you will, and being more of a servant leader has really aided into the culture of Iron Valley Barbell. And it's the reason why we have visitors from over 38 states and we've served people in over two dozen countries. Yeah. Well, you know, that might be a good, a good topic for our next segment is building culture. Um, cool. You know, my, my brain is close to getting fried and I have a full work day ahead. So, you know, maybe we, uh, maybe we cut there and, um, let's do it, man. I got a couple more podcasts to do myself. So this brain got to stay fired. Keep it firing. Keep dropping fire all day, Zach. Uh, been a pleasure, obviously. Thanks for joining us, uh, on Outlast the Iron episode two. Um, and we will see you on social media as well as next week. Later. Awesome. Later.